Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, I'm guessing if you're listening to this part of the podcast, then you've already gone and listened to part one with Glenn Jacobs. So I don't need to give you guys the big long spiel of who Glenn is and what he's all about. We just simply could not fit in everything we wanted to talk about in the first sitting at McAllister Brewery. So we relocated a couple of days later and uh, after a couple more kilometers on our specialized mountain bikes back to the view apartments in Trinity Beach. So part two, bit longer, bit deeper, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy. What are we drinking? Mate, this is uh, Lazy Yak. You know the whole thing about like sort of microbreweries and better beers and everything? I don't know about you, but growing up, we had a drink called NQ Lager, which your dad had vouched for. And you'd drink that and you would be sick for eh, close, on, close on a week. So that's why you kept on drinking every day. So you wouldn't be sick. You just kept on topping up. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get a hangover when you're just drunk. Where these all these new beers, there's some that uh, just, they don't give, oh, if you drink a lot, you'll get sick. Mm. But uh, if you don't drink a lot and you drink a few, you sort of don't have a hangover. And um, I don't know, some people are more sensitive than others, you know, with, I think, red wine. I don't know about you. I can't drink it. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't really had like a big wine hangover yet, but I've started drinking wine post kidney error oh yeah that's right so i don't so i don't go like too hard so i don't know if i'm ever gonna have a wine hangover because i just don't know if i'm ever gonna go that hard on it yeah i wouldn't yeah but you get but you get a hangover anyway and that you know and mm. i think it's sulfur or something in there and uh different different alcohols yeah preservatives yeah yeah. so in australia with beer anyway it has to sort of go from wherever it's made brewed let's say melbourne it's got to go to darwin and then the truck breaks down it's halfway there and you know maybe goes cold hot hot cold then you you know but it just can't, no good can't be to, good for it no no where i remember one world cup in uh belgium hoofalese we were drinking big vats of beer and drinking lots of them woke up in the morning no hangover and they said well that's because you have to drink the beer within a month because mm. there's no preservatives and no hangover that's why um I did the brewery tour of the Forex. Have you ever done that? The Forex brew tour? No, no. I've heard so about it. It's good. They said that that's why they do um, brown bottles because there's something to do with like the light and the huh. heat. And if you have a clear bottle for a certain type of beer, yeah, then it'll like ruin the beer. So they make the bottles brown so that it does something to the light. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know the science behind it, but. I just always thought it was like a, good. a looks thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. I thought it because the beer was brown, but nah. it's because of that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. All right. So this is part two of the Glenn Jacobs podcast. We started at McAllister Brewery and then we were having a yarn and then they had to open because it's a highly functioning brewery yeah. and people actually line up to get in as it opens. Yeah. So now we've switched to the View Resort at Trinity Beach. Yeah. And we're going to keep going because we didn't talk about enough stuff in the first bit. <laughs> we didn't touch on much. Well, how, we, yeah. how did it feel? Like you said it felt so quick. It just went quick, yeah. It's crazy, eh? 
It is, eh? I, I suppose like any good conversation, if you're mm. having a yarn, just you know, just one thing flows onto another, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking it was an hour and a half or something, and mm. bang, done. So we we didn't even touch on anything. Yeah, and you feel like you talk for. I mean, I know that with the the Sam Moore and Jats podcast, it was three hours, and we're like, we didn't fucking even say anything. <laughs> <laughs> we talked for three hours, but we didn't say much. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it felt like, eh? Mm. But it's good. Yeah. It's really relaxing and it's therapeutic, I suppose. You know, and it's uh, there's so many things you, you know, I don't know, want to say, but there's so many things you can say. It's just different mm. ways the thread goes. You know. So, yeah. Yeah. So we left off talking about um, World Trail. Yeah. and your business that you've created did you ever think that trail building would get to the point where because with you guys um like i've been lucky enough to see like kind of the inner workings of it with filming and stuff like that yeah. it's run as well as like i'm trying to think of like a good example but the processes that you have in place the mm. systems that you have the trail manuals everything that you guys do like the company philosophy it's all so watertight and i think mm. that from i guess like an outside perspective you wouldn't expect that level of detail from a company that builds mountain bike trails yeah but you guys have really taken that whole thing to like a new level of professionalism well you have to you know um i think with the knowledge you get and well to answer your first question um Look, always had dreams and aspirations that trail building would go big, you know. Um, I suppose back when I, before World Trail started, but back when I started building trails, you know, I said to a couple of guys that were working with, with me who were the local in the local club, I said, one day we'll get to a stage where we'll be building trails and you'll be working on that project and you'll be working on that project and I'll be here and then I'll come around and check on your work and then we'll go from there and we'll, you know, just sort of darting around. And uh, they said, no, that, that can't happen, you know. And I sort of believed them a little bit. I thought, well, that's, that's a big big ask, really, to have crews in different towns building trails. But look, after a while, it just happened, you know. It's, uh, you know, there was nothing, there was no trail building at all before 2003 or four in Australia, mm. um, you know, uh, as in recreational trails. Probably the biggest thing that ever happened, like with mountain biking when it first kicked off and we were there right at the start, is it was all about race, 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 race. Mm. You know, it's all about events. And, uh, you know, I think the Cairns Mountain Bike Club, when I became president, um, I think we held something like 40 events in one year, you know, and it was just like racing downhill and uh, Pony Expresses, you know. And for the first year, we didn't even know what cross country was. You know, mm. we just thought everything was downhill. And that was our culture. That's where we came from. And over the years, you know, you, you did a lot of events and, and, uh, it was, but it was about riding. But at the same time, on weekends, we'd be out looking for trails. We'd be mm. out going, oh, look, I rode a motorbike once from that hill over to the back of that waterfall. Let's go and see if we can still find it. And we'd do that. So it'd more, be more hiking, you know, than, than, than riding because you'd be dragging your bike through wader wilds and stinging trees and through the rainforest and everything. But those trails are where, I mean, the trails that exist now is because of that, you know. Mm. Um, and look, it just went on and on from there and I think the big crash of mountain biking happened in 2003 now, I certainly had been building um, professional trails for the UCI since like 1996 mm. and uh, you know it was all about race as I said but they, they've got, there's such a thing like have you heard about the marketing spike or um, there's a graph that's out like anything that's new like skateboarding or motocross or mm. you know wakeboarding or anything you know it, it sort of 
ramps up, you know, from ignition, just goes, goes, goes. But there is a ceiling it hits. And it, once it hits that ceiling, it drops, you know. Mm. So you, it, it tops out as, as a... So know. it's almost like an initial false economy kind of... Yeah, well, the excitement and, and I suppose, you know, everything, uh, you know, um, everybody's jumping on board. It's the greatest, it's the it's newest thing. Yeah. You know, everybody's on board. And then it's just like, oh, the fad's over or whatever, you know, it, and it hits the ceiling and drops down. And when it hits the bottom and, you know, bottoms out, nobody, there's no rules at all. It may scuff along the bottom for a while before it comes back. Well, mountain biking certainly did that. You know, the, the big boom was sort of 1990 mm. when mountain biking was available. You know, mountain bikes were available to a lot of people. And then, it, you know, the World Cups came along, World Championships, and uh, people were getting paid a lot of money in the 90s, you know, mm. uh, the athletes. And uh, look, towards the end of uh, the 90s and early 2000s, uh, it, uh, it, that's when it topped out and dropped. And when it did drop, one of the greatest things... You know, I'd never, I'd never seen it before, and it was the greatest things that ever could happen to mountain biking. It dropped down and it scuffed out. A lot of people lost their jobs, including me, mm. for the UCI and quite a few other people. Um, and, uh, you know, companies sort of shrunk and, you know, they were, you know, technology had to move it forward, which it did. But when it came back, it scuffed along the bottom for a couple of years, but instead of just coming, ramping straight back up uh, to racing, it sort of did a bit of a dog leg to the right and actually came back as recreation. Mm. And that was the greatest thing because then people, you know, could see that it was all about recreational riding, not just about racing, you know. People just didn't get into mountain biking because they thought, oh, we'll have to race. And mm. that was the case. So then, you know, government agencies, especially in Australia, um, and Australia has got the best mountain bike industry, I believe, in the world because uh, it was created in a way to be fair and um, professional. Um, you know, um, it, it got to a stage where government agencies and councils were building mountain bike parks or tracks just like they were earlier than that, like a decade before with skate parks, mm. you know, and that's where it had to get, you know. Um, certainly uh, we, myself and my business partner, Dylan, we identified early in the piece that if the industry was going to go anywhere, we had to drag it away from the cottage industry that existed. Mm. which was just a couple of people scratching trails for like, you know, 50 bucks or, you know, uh, volunteers and stuff like that. And that's great. That's, that exists and it's strong and you have to have that. But as a company and as an industry, you actually get, got to get bigger than that. Um, you know, rangers and land managers want to speak to somebody who's a professional. Mm. So you have to take that professional approach, which, which a lot of individuals and probably core mountain bikers don't like because they see it as a, you know, that's their sport. And when you bring big companies in, looks like you've sold out or whatever but at the same time there's bike manufacturers and plus there's i guess there's that um thing of a lot of people get into mountain biking motocross skateboarding wakeboarding like action sports because mm. they don't want to do the team thing which yeah. is associated with like that overall governing body type of stuff so it's like yeah you get those core quote unquote core dudes that want to go scratch the gnarliest shit in the yeah. side of the <laughs> yeah, hill yeah and it's like that's even just that in itself not even including the riding is a form of rebellion for them so it's like you can't build an industry on the back of a bunch of renegade rebel dudes that are like fuck you man yeah yeah well look back then also because the sport was so new the activity was so new you also wanted to validate you, you needed credibility mm. so you know it had to you had to hit the biggest stuff and go down and we certainly were part of that you know we had that you know um 
you basically take the seat off and go down such steep stuff you'd be sitting on the rear tire we had a you know uh, we had a little um catchphrase if a tree grew on it you could ride it which means a tree couldn't grow on a cliff but anything a little bit you know yeah. less than that you could ride it you know so there was that and probably one of the greatest things a funny little story back in 1994 we had a round of the world cup here in cairns and uh, it was a cr- only cross-country. It was the first uh, UCI event to come to Australia, you know, Southern Hemisphere. And, you know, not many pe- people knew of Cairns, but they didn't know how crazy the trails were at all. And we wanted to, val- you know, needed mm. validation. We needed credibility, you know, that everybody wanted to say, look, our, our shit's the best, you know. It's the nastiest and steepest. And probably one of the best things happened for us uh, that weekend. Uh, it actually happened on a Thursday. Uh, before the weekend, an official from the Australian um, Cycling or Mountain Bike Federation was up there to look at the downhill because the downhill was part of a, an Australian series. While he was walking the downhill to check it out, he slipped over and broke his leg. And that's sad, you know, it's not good for him, but we've all gone, wow, that's great, there's validation, there's credibility at the time. So that, that radiated out around Australia like before it's so social steep, media. You can't even walk it. Exactly, you know, you can't walk it and, uh, you know, it, it's that's not, that's not, it's that nasty that somebody broke their leg walking, you know. Yeah. So everybody's like, holy shit, people weren't there going, that. and it was, it was crazy, there's nothing like it because before that, most downhills were on dirt roads. Yeah. I certainly went to the, uh, the Australian Championships in 1990, a big team of us went. Um, and we were expecting some really steep stuff and it was only a dirt road. And we were actually on the way back, we were, I was telling somebody that story the other day on the way back with all our bikes. We weren't, that sport wasn't for us. Mm. And this is not, this is what we just saw. That's not for us. By the time we got back from, you know, from Canberra to Cairns, a big long drive, by the time we were about 200 k's out of Cairns, we've gone, hang on, why don't we just do what we do? Why don't we just ride what we ride? And we don't have to be like that. And it paid off. Mm. So was that like, was that what sparked the filming of Mud Cows and stuff? Was yeah. almost like because the <laughs> racing scene wasn't going to give you guys the platform to showcase the like where mountain biking was in your head. Yeah. So then it was like, okay, well, let's just show people what we think of mountain biking should be. Yeah. And is that where Mud Cows almost came from? Definitely. It started with a movie first called Ice Cream Heads from Outer Space. And we called, it was called Ice Cream Heads because that's when it was law to wear a helmet and they looked like fucking ice cream buckets you know yeah. so we got we call them ice cream heads from our space and that yeah exactly that you know we filmed that and also when we got to mud cows oh, with ice cream heads we you know we were doing things like shuttling up the top of the pyramid you know the world's um largest uh, natural pyramid just outside of Kansas. it was the first heli bike trip in the world where we slung bikes up and dropped them at the top and rode down rode most of it down and, uh, you know, riding off waterfalls. You know, I remember Hans Ray saying, well, what the hell are you doing there? You know, we'd find waterfalls that you could actually ride down. And we're doing all those crazy things that we just thought that's what a mountain bike would do. Um, and then went into Mud Cows. And again, the name Mud Cows came from a name that we didn't want to have any association to do with. We didn't want to call it like Australian mountain biking or anything that was so yeah. lame. Yeah. We tried to find a word that was so obscure and so different and so far, you know, away from mountain biking. So we weren't selling out. So that's our call. We, you know, we we kept that kept that going. We wanted to film everything that we could do, every single thing, and that was the gashes, the crashes, and uh, the good stuff too. But it was mainly gashes and crashes because we were all learning how to ride bikes, you know, down Wattleblower and the pyramid and stuff like that. Isn't it funny? Now, I guess it's like a bit of a side thought, but it's like <coughs> that there is people that would will criticize like some world trail trails as being like oh it's only flow and it's only this blah 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 like walking sure. trail shit like dirt footpaths which is just ignorant yeah. but you 
it's like, no, 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 hold on a minute. Can you please go back and watch Ice Cream Heads from Outer Space and Mud Cows 1, 2, 3, and 4? Mm. And like, we're, that's the same people. Like, mm. we're, the, we're those people. Yeah. Like, this is just where mountain biking needed to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's not like, yeah, I just find it funny when I do hear criticisms of yeah. world trail stuff. And I'm just like, but look at all that old stuff. Like, yeah. they invented all of that. But look, like, because that's what they're still trying to be. Yeah. Like they're still trying to be mud cows in a way. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, look, that, that type of thing sort of falls down into that, that um, you know, forum thread. Yeah. Where 95% of the people say great, thing and five, great things and 5% may say negative and you focus on the negative. Well, it's the same with trail building. You know, our guys, you know, we all build amazing stuff. You know, the, the guys build some rad stuff that is not easy to ride, but... We do build easy stuff too because you've got to look after everybody, yeah. not just this core group. Because they're, the, they're going to be the backbone. Yeah, well, we call them the 79 percenters. Yeah. They're the people there you know, between you know, uh, sort of dark green and blue and edging on the black, you know, um, skill level and everything like that. And they're the people that pay the bills. They're the people that go out riding, you know. And certainly, yeah, we, we have built footpathy type um, trails, but they're only this much, but people do focus on that, yeah. you know. And you turn around and, well, we, we also, you know, uh, got awarded trail of the year last year for the trails in Derby when which people is supposed to be the gnarliest yeah. craziest toughest trail that they raced all year all yeah. over the world and look there was the riders and the media that voted for that nobody else mm. pardon me so that, that's great and look you know we've you know we built I don't know how many world cups and world championships and Olympic and stuff like that so look there's a lot of rad stuff out there you know that's it's, it's really challenging mm. but Look, the industry is not going to go far if that's all you build. Well, you like when you build for the um, when you build for the masses, hmm. like you've got to give people a gateway into something. Definitely, yeah. you know what I mean. And it's like you, the industry will thrive with more mountain bikes on hmm. trails. Yeah. So it's like, what's the way to get? Like, we could get to a point where there is justification for more double black diamonds. Hmm when there's more people that are up to that level but yeah. how do you skill up these people that don't yeah. ride yet yeah. are you just gonna be the cool dude that says like well you just gotta ride the black or you just fucking <laughs> yeah, get yeah, off yeah. the trail you know yeah, yeah. like it doesn't work like yeah. that's that's alienating people from mm. the industry which is just gonna keep it this closed loop and it's impossible to grow from from like inside out yeah yeah and we did that look back then with you know in the early days we uh we certainly said well you know because we had a few people saying, oh, look, we can't ride that. And we're like, well, if you can't ride, you should be in your mountain biking, you know? Yeah. So we, we, we get it. We know where it comes from. It's a really ego-based, you know, um, way of thinking. But um, it's got to be like shopping centres. I use this analogy all the time. If you, uh, you know, if you go to any strip mall or shopping centre, say 50, 50 stores in there, if you go in there and they're all, uh, you know, butcher or all a news agent, you're not going to go back there much because it's the same bloody thing, yeah. you know. The shopping centres work well for the masses of people because there's, you know, there's a lot of things in there for everybody. Mm. Um, so trials need to be that. They, they have to reflect that too, you know, and, and, and growth. You know, you need growth. Um, that's why every trail that we build has got a little sneaky line here and there. Yeah. And if you don't recognise it, and what I mentioned before about the guana, you know, going through the, the sand and climbing up the tree, if you don't recognise that guana, you don't know that there was a guana there. Yeah. So if you don't recognise that there's a sneaky jump off that rock and landing over there, well, you'll just ride past it. Yeah. But if you have that skill, you'll be looking for that. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't matter what skill you, what level you are at, at you know, green, blue, black, double black, there'll always be another sneaky line. Dude, and Derby's the perfect example of that. Like mm. we did, um, 
trying to think what trail it was. It might have been Return to Sender. Yeah. And I was following um, Max and Muff down. And Muff was in front and Max, he was second. And they were kind of going a bit slower so I could keep up with them. Mm. And it was a, I've, I rode that trail a bunch of times. But when I followed Max, that was a totally different trail. I different jumped, tra- yeah. jumped the whole way down that thing. <laughs> Did you? And there was like jumps and gaps and all this, yeah. like all this sneaky lines mm. that I didn't see the first however many times I did it. Yeah. But it's you're right, like there is that stuff built in yeah. if you want to open your eyes and really look mm. at the options that have been made there. And also NFR, no force risk. Mm. You know, we will not, uh, you know, um, we'll not put, not put something in that's a forced risk. You know, we're not forcing somebody to do it. And we're not forcing somebody, we're putting it on the main line of that rated trail. It's skilled, you know, if it's a blue trail, we will not put a black um, obstacle bang on, the, on your ride line. It'll yeah. just be off a little bit. Because if you've got skill to hit that, you'll be able to change your trajectory too, you know, so. Well, you see like a really good example of that is like in California, like, what do you guys do with your the way that the trails get built is that you can all ride together Hmm. so i mean i've got friends in california and i'd ride like big bear snow summit all those mountains and they're like got they're double black and it's just all this fucking whatever (laughs) the whole way down and so i'll be at the top and like i can ride that yeah but then my friend can't so all of a sudden we're splitting up at the top of a hill i've gone there to ride with my friend yeah but he can't ride the same trails yeah. in the same way that i can mm. so then i have to go okay i'll see you at the bottom which is lame mm. but then with any of the like especially derby's a perfect example of that we can all start at the same hill mm. ride the same trail a different way mm. and my friends can then do the exact same thing there's no splitting up i'll see at the bottom it's just giving people those options and then that no yeah. force risk thing comes into play and i think just that is it's all those one percent that make an experience mm. of riding like a derby yeah. or you know what i mean so it's like it's just it's all those little details that like and like i said it's because of the protocols that you guys yeah. have in place yeah. it's a structure it's a plan there's no deviation because the over the years of doing it it's like this is what works best mm, mm. and i can ride with my friends all day on the same trails no one's splitting up no one's piecing out to go to different shit yeah and you know meet you at the bottom like we get to ride together yeah and you have fun too and we do the same with climbs you know you climb up you now the climb uh you don't want to bust your ass on a climb but there are parts of the trail that you will if you want some technical climbing you put that in but you don't force people into something really difficult you know um Look, there's uh, there's all different aspects. There's all different things with trails that you. Um, the main thing is to to get them right. They have to flow right. And flow people think flow is this groom trail. It's not. It's yeah. far from that. Yeah, you can have a flow trail that is um, you know berm roller roller berm some jumps. You know, it's just beautiful. Yeah, that's great. That's that's for a certain market. But flow, and it gets used a lot, unfortunately. But um it's a trajectory you know um if you you can have flow on a downhill that um you know some of the best trails to build you don't build them yeah you just don't build them you actually just mark them that's probably the best trail you can build and if it's sustainable if it's on the right soil yeah go ahead knock yourself out clifton's is the perfect example like when we rode the other morning yeah and like there was the one section and we i was behind you and we're kind of going these different lines and when, when we pulled up, I said, I was like, you couldn't build that. No. You couldn't build, build that better yeah, yeah. to where 
there's like there's, it's almost like an S section of tree roots mm. or you can just bomb straight down it yeah but it's going to grab you and it's going to pull your tire across and it's like you oh your I, choice I, you know? I, thought, yeah. I was like how how could you build something into yeah. a trail that so it's like it almost is too having that um having that I guess wisdom to be like, nope, that's right. Just leave that. That's yeah. that's how and it should look, be. And look, you can look. Traveling is a really funny beast because uh, look, I, I learned a long time ago. I went out and had a look at this guy's trail he was building. He said, "You know, come and have a look at it." And I looked and went, "Oh, nice trail, nice terrain, and everything." But that shit ain't gonna last. You know, it's gonna be washed down the hill in in um, a year or two. I went back there about three or four years later. It was the same. I've gone. Hang on, that did me a head in. Like every the rules and everything are you know. Um, it says that that was not going to last, but what it was, only he rode that trail. Uh, he only rode it once a week, and he didn't. There was no damage at all. There was no water runoff. You know, it was all good. It was sustainable because there was only one person riding a week. Well, we're in an industry where there's up to a thousand people a week, and you only have to have a look at Whistler to see that it has to be built for mm. a thousand people. And then you know a lot of you know. So a certain type of trail has to build, be built, no matter what people think. It has to be a, a certain type of trail. And yes, you can make it nasty. You, know, you can make it nasty, double black diamond, everything, but for a thousand people. Mm. So you have to put those protocols in place or it's going to fail. Yeah. And look, one of the, probably the biggest frustration for us as a company, you know, our guys have been doing this for years and years and years and years. You do not learn to build trails and mm. you know, go to a, you know, a school or a seminar or something like that and get skilled up. And yeah, you'll you'll get the basics for probably maintenance and maybe some things and you may be a natural, but it takes years and different types of environments. You know, building in Mount Buller and Falls Creek and Derby and, and, and Stromlo and, and in Canberra and Cairns and Afford and all different types of soils. Mm. And they all react differently. And, uh, you know, some trails can be a certain way and you can get away with that. You know, you can get away with some steep stuff and nasty stuff as long as the soil is really dark clay and rich and solid with rocks in it but if it's sandy and loam you can't do that mm. so you have to build the trails accordingly you know so it's really interesting it takes a long time and look unfortunately we see you know all over the world uh people building the wrong trail and i always look at it this way you can't do that much damage a group of volunteers going out and building a trail you know because they're They've got a shovel and a mattock and, you know, a fire rakes and they'll build some trails. And if you get the predictability wrong, you get the trajectory wrong, you get the drainage wrong and everything like that, and you're not getting that many people riding it, you can get away with it. But as soon as you get in there with a machine, <coughs> it's like taking a submachine gun into a shopping centre. <laughs> you can do a lot of damage. You know, it's, it's, you, can do, you can do some real bad damage. And, and uh, that's a bad thing at the moment because there's no accreditation in travelling. There's no... Mm. trade at all or anything like that you know and, um, we're on the we're about to change that mm. as much as we can you know because it's uh, you know the beauty is uh, this industry is growing and it's growing fast and it's growing strong people are gone like gone are the days I use this all the time gone are the days where you'll go on holidays and sit around a pool yeah. for like four weeks and that's your that's your annual holiday and go oh this is living no it's not you're dying yeah. you know living is going and doing something you know um, happened here in Cairns years ago in the you know, 30 years ago, whitewater rafting. You go on holidays and you're doing something adventurous, you know. You want to climb to the top of that hill. Yeah. Uh, you want to climb to the top of the hill and get credit on Instagram, you know, and take the photo from the sunrise or something like that. The world is changing in a beautiful way. People want outdoor adventure now. And mountain biking is a big part of that. And now you can build trails, uh, you know, for, for hiking and, uh, and riding. 
uh, and they're nearly the same. What was the big break, I guess, because you did the, you had like the chapter of your career that was like the UCI chapter, mm, mm. which probably culminated with like you guys doing the Olympics in mm, Sydney. Yeah. So I guess that was like, is there like, would, would you say there's two errors to your career of, mm. as a trail builder? That UCI mm. um, 97 to 2003 mm, yeah, kind of era. Yeah, yeah. And then from then on, it was World Trail. Yeah. Like, what was the big break for World Trail, do you think, that really legitimized you guys as a company? Oh, there was a few, and Dylan and I often talk about this. Um, there's actually three, <coughs> pardon, three levels to that. The first one was a volunteer level. Well, when I was president of the club, we, we built trails and we just was just volunteer and we just built trails out of passion, you know, built heaps of stuff all the way around Cairns. Most of the downhills that exist now, mm. we cut in. Um, that was for about, you know, six years. So, uh, you know, you, you've done your time sort of volunteering. You've done a lot of that, you know, mm. and uh, that's where you get a lot of skill and knowledge and um, stuff like that. So the biggest one I would say is Stromlo yep. in Canberra. Look, it, uh, it's... Uh, it was a big beast. It was large. Uh, we'd built quite a few um, projects before that. And again, as you said, you know, with the UCI, um, I was lucky enough to be the world's first professional racetrack builder, you know, mm. full time. And that UCI, you know, allowed that to happen, which was great. Um, and then uh, I took all that knowledge, you know, especially timelines. You know, we actually had to drop into some, you know, like in Austria, Caprun, yeah. had to build a, a dual track, like a four cross track. I'd get there on a Monday and they were practicing on a Thursday. So you'd actually have to build it no matter what weather. So it was like bang, bang, live TV and everything, like bang, bang. And I couldn't even watch the race because I was in the plane going to Spain to build another trail that was ready for, you know, when all the athletes got there. So it, 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 was, it was exciting. It was good times. Um, but it was, all get, it was all about race, race. We had a few um, trails we designed. It was like uh, forest um, in Victoria, in Tasmania, uh, Glen Orkey Park. Uh, we went in there and uh, designed the four cross and some of the other stuff there. And um, some of the four cross tracks that Robbie McNaughton, you know, yeah. from, uh, I would say that was a key point where Robbie McNaughton actually um, got me down there building four cross tracks around his grandparents' farms and stuff like that. And that grew into, grew into something else where one of his friends wanted a four cross track in, um, in uh, Armidale. Yeah. And that's where World Trail started. Um, we were doing some filming, doing that television show. Yeah, yeah. Who was um, on that? It was Mick. Oh, was Mick Kavarik, uh, yeah, There was a heap of people. We travelled around Australia in, in a bus. bus yeah. right? yeah. All sponsors, which was great, you know. Dennis Bear was on that, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, Dennis was there. Yeah. Ricky Boyer. Yeah. There was a, and the series was great. It was a half an hour show. And, you know, it was on Fuel TV, yeah, right? Fuel, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was, you know, it was, to do that was fantastic. It was tough. It was a tough gig. But... Um, Dylan Jeffries, who's my business partner, it was Dylan and I and um, James Wells and Benny Bramham. We yeah. drove the bus, sometimes sleeping too. <laughs> we'd have this big long stick we'd poke in. But it was a camp, big camper van, which was donated. Went around Australia doing that. But anyway, we, uh, we got up and running and, and uh, I got this, uh, this document, like a tender saying, you know, from uh, Armadale Council, saying that they wanted a four crash four cross track built and I went yeah I could do that but what's these pages like looking through them and everything like that I don't know how to put that together and I just said to Dylan I said do you know anything about that he said oh I've been to university uh, did my marketing I mean my management business management he said I can do that I said well why don't we go halves you do the paperwork I'll do the the trails and it's been the same ever since so I'd say that was a key point and also um, Forrest we met Jared McHugh who 
who was our client, who is now a manager. Yeah, of, uh, still works. Yeah, working with World Trail and and you know uh, Reese Atkinson. There was Bryn Atkinson's. Uh, Bryn used to live at my place and train, and it's uh, Bryn's younger brother Reese, and he started many years ago, and all these you know uh, people came along for the right uh, came along to uh, help grow mm. uh, World Trail. But the big one was, I think, Stromlo because uh, they initially wanted only nine kilometres of trail that went round the round Oh, the is that it? That's all they wanted, you know. And we said, well, we can do that. But a town this size, you know, and a hill this big, and it wasn't a big build, um, big hill, I think it was like 175 metres, which isn't a lot. I think 172 is a mountain. So I think they've got 175 metres. Mount Stromlo um, wasn't big, but it was in the right right location. It was burnt down years before. A big fire went and took out everything, so it was a barren landscape. So you could see every gully, every hill, every cliff, mm. you know, every every bit of the landscape. But the reason I'm talking about it a, a lot because uh, it was a key ignition point in Australian mountain biking, and the ignition point started um, when um, we said, "Well, maybe not." You know, nine kilometres is okay, but you know, that's just going around. It probably there's more here. Yeah, that could be Yeah, yeah, you can do a lot more, and you know, stack loops and you know, easy trails, and you know, you can put beginner trails down here and harder trails up there, and you could probably put a downhill and two in, or two in here. And uh, they were listening, you know, which was great. Uh, the ACT government were thinking about. It. They said, well, that's probably not a bad idea, you know. But I also said that if you did that, um, you may get like the Australian Championships. Uh, you get state championships, Australian Championships, and if you did a few more things, you could probably get a World Cup. And they listened. They said, well, you know, they, they like that. They, you know, the government officials, they said, well, it's all about, like any region, bringing major Money events in. into yeah. in the region. And uh, that's where it started. And look, uh, you know, it wasn't, as everybody knows, it wasn't the most amazing downhill as the one Steve Pete won at the World Championships because they finally got a World Championship wasn't a huge down it was fairly flat you had a lot of pedaling and it was great the pd one and everything and the cross country we made as aggressive as possible and so there was a few haters about stromlo and rightfully so it wasn't sort of something out the back of canberra which was really steep and crazy but it was at the footstep it was at the doorstep sorry of canberra mm. the city it was urban and the biggest thing then this is what i was saying the biggest uh, change uh, that happened to our company and to the interest industry that it was it was run by the Parks and Wildlife there. And everybody around Australia, all rangers, everybody in that industry, rangers and land managers and everything like that, wanted to know about this mountain bike thing. How mm. do you build these things and everything? And Canberra was the only one. So it was like a template. So people would come, rangers and uh, land managers would come to Stromlo and look at it and see how it works and see how sustainable it was and um, see where the parking was. And they'd go, this is good, it's a template. And then they looked at the numbers of 1,500 people a, a week riding the trails. They're going, well, this is work. And that's what really fired up mountain biking in Australia was Stromlo. So that was really close to our hearts, you know. It's, uh, and then from there on, it went, it went crazy from there. Yeah, and then that was almost like, I guess, the proof of concept for you guys to be like, well, we could do this everywhere. Yeah. Where there is, like we said in, I guess, part one of this, what you said, there's, um, there's key points that have to be hit oh, definitely. to make a successful mm. yeah. um you know mountain biking kind of you yeah. know driver culture in a town and so i guess if stromolo is the ignition point derby is like the culmination sure. of that because for anyone that hasn't seen anything on derby they should stop or well, not stop the podcast but they should 
get on their phone or whatever and look at Derby. What's the Instagram? At Blue Derby? I think Blue, just at Blue Derby, yeah. 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 So, yeah. like, just see what is there now. And, like, I've done a bunch of filming there. Like, there's a ton of great content that's come out of there with, like, Flo and all the different people. And but Hans Ray went there. Yeah, yeah. And with Hans. Yeah. So, it's like, that is, to me, I guess, like, the culmination of World Trail up to this point because you ignited a town like mm. when i i mean when i first went there with hans and tyler and carmen and you mm. it was like we couldn't even get a coffee yeah. we could barely get dinner like yeah. we were driving to like all these different towns to get mm. dinner there was buck was still in a shed yeah like buck didn't even have vertigo no. so it was like if you just from that first trip to now it's like this town has come alive and mm. it was an old logging town yeah. old mining town that just went they had like a crazy flood like there's a yeah. crazy story behind derby itself as a town yeah but then it was it was just done like there was nothing going Low on there economic uh nothing like i hadn't I'll, sold a house there in how long oh years and years and years but look i'll go back a, a a year or more or two when we first went there um everybody said don't go to derby you know that you, you know um well, you know, there was a, there was a tender out. There was, you know, there was money available to build some trails, and uh, there was, you know, a lot of mountain bikers in Tasmania, um, rightfully, rightfully so, thought the money should have been spent in Launceston because that's the main town. Mm. You know, that's the biggest town up there in northeast uh, Tasmania, and another place close to Scottsdale and a few others. And there was some uh, designs done by other people to say that, that reflected that. But uh, you know what? As soon as we saw Derby, we had a look at all the other places that they were suggesting and even the council was suggesting. Um, but then Derby came along and Derby was perfect. Mm. And again, it goes back to our UCI roots where something that's no further than an hour and a half. That was the rules for UCI if you wanted a World Cup. Mm. Nothing any further than an hour and a half from a major airport. And Derby came in an hour and 15, an hour and 20. And that was great. Depends who's driving. Yeah, well, that's true with the amount of kangaroos and wombats around. But yeah, look, um, and that worked. And uh, you know the whole thing about surfing. You know, you surf. Yeah. And I've got a lot of friends that surf, and they go and they go to Indonesia on some you know some whack journey. You know, on a bloody yeah, they spend like thirty hours in a plane to and get somewhere. Yeah, just to ride, or just to um, surf uh, a surf break or a few. You know, so it's remote and unique. Um, we saw Derby as Australia's first mountain bike town. It could become Australia's first mountain bike town because every dollar that could come through that town could be tracked. There was no football club. There was no this. There was no that. You know, in the larger town like you know, uh, Launceston, you know, mountain biking would probably just lose. Yeah, you've got you've got a group of people, but you just lose that. It's hard to really put a, a dollar amount on what's getting spent in in exactly. Lonnie through mountain biking. Yeah, and look, we knew, and we already. <clears throat> Pardon me. We already knew what worked, and uh, you had to have uh, amazing countryside, uh, a small, beautiful town at the base of a hill, not far from an international airport, and room to grow. Mm. And uh, you know, that's exactly what's happened. Like uh, the first day we were there, and it's like it's like a scene out of a movie. I was telling people we drove through. It was a cloudy, drizzly Tuesday afternoon, about two thirty. There was only one person in that street, and that person had a sheet of ply, and they were bashing up with nail and hammer, putting that ply over a broken window, like. You know, the place is shut. It was Ghost done. Town. And it was. A couple of pubs are open for a little while and that's fine. But, uh, you know, it's it's anything that's going to be a success has to work on at grassroots level. Your one hour power of an afternoon, go out and ride and, you know, has to work for the locals. There wasn't anybody there riding, really, mm. you know. Um, 
It has to work. Once that works really well, your, your second level, that's a, there's, there's three layers. The first layer, has to, you have to work at a community and a, a cultural level. Mm. The second layer is you can hold events on those trails when you build them. Um, and the third level is a destination. So Derby was sort of, we talked about this, you know, it was mm. spun around the other way. You know, there was nobody there riding bikes, but it was going to be a major destination. I don't think they realised how big a destination mm-hmm. it is, you know. Um, and look, there was a lot of, not a lot, but we, we copped a lot of flack, you know, um, from deciding to, well, pushing the point of Derby. But it was for the right reason, you know. Mm. It came for the right reason. It wasn't because of money. It wasn't because of anything. It was because this is where mountain biking has to go. And to this day, we will get a lot of people say, we want the next Derby. And certainly, they can have the next Derby. No problems at all in their, their region, as long as they tick those boxes, mm. you know. And it has to be done right. You know, the guy, um, you know, the, the Tim Watson who runs it, like he's, uh, he, goes for, he, he goes for everything. He makes sure everything's done properly and it's mm. correct, you know. And, uh, and because enough, he gets it, yeah, yeah, like he's a mountain biker himself, yeah. or he is now, like yeah. he's an avid, hardcore mountain biker, like he, mm. he knows. And I think that that's, I guess, the big ace in the hole with Derby was having a guy on the inside that knew, like mm. he could, he shared the vision. It wasn't like you were constantly having to convince him. Yeah. Like I th- he got it pretty well straight he, away. He got it. And also, you know, like, um, you know, that, that, and that's really critical. It's a, it's really a critical point that people don't understand in, in the mountain bike industry. We always thought, and I mentioned this before, we always thought that the biggest threat in our industry would be uh, really bad uh, trail builders. You know, people that were coming into the industry that didn't know how to build well. Mm. And that would affect, you know, um, certain projects but we realized uh, after quite a few years it's uh, some clients that don't know what a mountain bike trail is when it's delivered if mm. it's a good trail or if it's a bad trail because a lot of people are used to just delivering you know in that area they're sort of just used to delivering car parks and mm. you know <laughs> you know playgrounds, playgrounds and, and, and skate parks and things like that horses. because if you don't know what mountain biking is and you're, you're, you're a client you look at that somebody's built a really bad trail they'll go oh look they're having fun there you know, there is a dirt track, mountain bikers love it, that goes in the mountains and mm. people are here riding it. But look, after two or three years, you're going to be in a lot of problems. You're going to have a lot of problems. You're going to be in a lot of trouble, you know. Mm. That trail will fall apart. And um, that's why there's a few, out, few competitors out there that uh, can do it really cheap. Mm. Well, maybe it's the same as a plumber, a house builder or something like that. Yeah. Things ain't going to work in a few years' time, you know. Um, so that's where we are in the industry. We're lucky enough in Australia, we do have some great trail builders mm. and... Um, um, but, you know, it has to be down to the land manager that has the knowledge, you know, and I think I was talking about the coffee analogy, mm. you know, 20 years ago you expected in a coffee cup if you ordered a coffee from a cafe. Couple of scoops in Nescafe. Yeah, but now you know exactly what you want, you know, and you could probably rattle them off more than me. Yeah. You know, um, I'd re- drink a short macchiato with soy and honey, you know, and uh, um, half strength or whatever, you know, but people rattle, you know, there's all different types of coffee. Yeah, people are now connoisseurs as, a part, as opposed to just yeah. like, oh, yeah, white with two. Yeah, you well, know? that's where we have to get mountain, but that's where we have to get to, mm. you know, not so much for the, you know, riders are starting to critique tracks, which is great. They're mm. checking on drains. They're looking at this and there. And once they know more, have more knowledge on trails, they end up actually helping, volunteering in their clubs uh, because they do have a little bit more knowledge. And I think that's an exciting phase that we're about to go through. There's more and more of that happening. And that's a great thing for mountain bikes. Derby's such like, for me, it's like a um, ski resort experience. Yeah. Like I think, I mean, I've probably been to Derby five times now, four or five times. And 
I do anything to get there. Like any chance I get, I go there yeah. for the like a multitude of reasons. Like to see the World Trail crew that mm. are always still there building, like Muff and Max. Yeah, they're and always frothing. Eh? They're, they're like they build and ride. They just every day. What a great crew. Yeah, yeah like yeah. every day they're doing something. And then you've got like buck and and you know he's always gonna, Jude, yeah they're yeah. always gonna shuttle you and then you've got like the whole little community yeah. that's around there now but it's like i remember when um when we were there with wes doing the filming for the ews shoot yeah and like none of us even looked at our phones eh for like yeah. five days and yeah. it's it's all about the bike and you leave your phone at home because sometimes the service isn't even that great. Yeah. And you, well, it wasn't. It, no, it, it, is, it now. is now. Yeah, it's it is the now. best in Australia, yeah. But yeah, back back then it wasn't yeah. like you even really had that much service. Yeah, that's true. But like we didn't get, you. like you get the rental car and you get you to the airport it. and then it's just there. Yeah. And you just chuck all your bike bags well, that's a in ski, it. that's a ski resort that's, model. Yeah, you, know? you park the car, yep. you ride in and ride out. You know, it's an Apres bar type thing. You know, you, you do not touch that car again. And you don't want to touch that car again because you're there to ride for 10 days. And, you know, that whole tipping point thing we talk about, you know, you, you know you've got to have a bunch of trails. And we're still building trails there now. It's going to keep on going. And there's some more projects in that area. You know, northeast Tasmania is going to be spectacular in mm. a couple of years' time. You know, that is, um, you know, that that whole thing about um, enjoying your ride, going there with a bunch of people. You know, it's how many times have you been with a group of people? You know, going to you know skiing in Japan or mm. different parts around the world. You know, different places. You know, and and this is where mountain biking is now. You will not go to ride twenty kilometers of trail or thirty kilometers of trail. Mm-mm. You know, because that'll be done in a day. You need to go ride. 100 kilometers of trail and you can't do that in you know six to seven days you might scratch the surface surface and then you want to go back but and you ride those ride best ones. Yeah, ones yeah and that's why where there's a shuttle company look there's yeah, i think there's three or four shuttle companies in town now in derby certainly uh houses everywhere there's you know great cafes and restaurants and and we haven't even touched you know yeah and, and then too, there's so much more yet to come you know and it's crazy too because like the last time that we were there we met those boys from i believe they were from adelaide mm. remember when we were sitting down and we we're having dinner at the pizza wood fire oh, yeah, the last yeah, night yeah, we had yeah. dinner. i think they were from south australia south australia yeah. and um it's just like you know that anyone that's in that town is there for the same reason you are yeah and there's a real brotherhood that kind of and sisterhood that gets formed with people yeah. because it's like, well, oh, you if you're walking down the street, you're a mountain biker. Yeah, like you're not you're not walking down the street in Derby if you're not yeah. a mountain biker. And yeah. then you'll see Miles will be doing wheelies up and down, and then all of a sudden there's like ten dudes doing wheelies and stoppies, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, to the vibe that's created is just like one of a kind, yeah. and it's just such a rad, or just a the- rad community. And, and, and look, I see Derby uh, where it's going, uh, and it's as I said, you know, it's got a long way to go yet because uh, you know don't don't think it's over yet. You mm. know, it's, it's going to go for quite some time, as in you know growth. Um, but you know, Squamish. You know, the first time I went to Squamish, exactly that. You know, going driving around with Dennis Bear, and somebody goes past with a you know a Ute with a shuttle pad on the back, and I'm like, oh, and you look. See who's like in there. What type of bike? See, they're a mountain biker. And yeah. then the next car goes by, by with a shuttle pad, and then you go down the main street, and every you, every pickup has got a shuttle pad. And then you realise that's their life. Yeah. Here we are, you know, because there's so many rad trails in Squamish. You know, you love going back there, like Belling, you know, Bellingham and all those places. You know, it's fantastic, and it's that core outdoor living. You mm. know, and they've done it for years and years and years and years in Australia. 
as individuals have done it every now and then, you know, doing doing things. But now this core group of people are doing it. And Derby will be one of those towns for sure. You know, once businesses grow, come there as, you know, importers and stuff like that, and, it's, you know, they start setting up a shop there and everything like that. But Squamish is spectacular. You know, every single person in Squamish does something outdoors. You where know? Where is Squamish? Just before um, uh, Whistler on the way Yeah, up. okay. Yeah. Because and I, it makes me think of Tahoe as well. Oh like yeah, when you see yeah. Tahoe, like I've rode there a bit in the summer. You've got like Heavenly and um, yeah, and um, Truckee, you know, tru- Truckee. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Truckee, what I was thinking. Yeah, Truckee's of. like that. You know, yep. it's amazing. You know, and uh, I remember Sean Palmer lived at, uh, on the lake, and uh, yeah, a lot of people. You go to go somewhere, and yeah, we were talking about that the other day about you know how many traffic lights do you want to go through mm. to do what you lo- do something you love. You know, you, you don't want to go through anybody any. You don't want to go through any traffic lights. You want to ride from just be there your house, you know. And uh, that's certainly what you know. All those other places like Squamish, you can ride anywhere you live in Squamish. You can ride to the trails. What was it like being? You just mentioned Sean Palmer. What was it like being right there for all that early days? Like you saw the skin suit era. You yeah, saw yeah. like the Palmer coming along, and then yeah. you know like the Kavarix and all. Like, man, there was some crazy characters that, like, come through mountain biking. Like, you already mentioned Steve Pete, mm. you got Manar, you got Mick. Like, mm. that was a really crazy time. Well, like, look, it's, it was special because you could see something happening. And uh, I was actually talking to Chris Taylor today about this. Um, you know, uh, people come into mountain biking from different areas. And certainly um, road cycling, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but road cycling, you you. you there was that you know line coming from road cycling into mountain biking because you had a road bike, you cycled, and then you got mm. this new thing was fat tires. Then there was this other group with were the real influencers. They knew mm. what was up, and they were motocross riders or skateboarders, you know, wakeboarders uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, BMX riders, and uh, that's where we start talking about Sean Palmer. Mm. Before that, you had small pockets of people that came from those influences, you know, the the, the motocross and and stuff like that, but they. There was still too, you know, there was a lot of road cyclists influencing the sport, you know. Mm. When Sean Palmer came in, you know, I know the UCI wasn't really happy about that style, you know, because he was also, you know, set it as, as it was, you know, and he was pretty cool. Made no that. secrets about partying and all yeah, that kind of stuff. you know, Rob Warner too and those guys, you know, they, they got God a lot of... God bless Warner. Oh, yeah, God bless Rob. You know, and they got an, a lot of strife for being just... Who, the, so themselves. Random. Yeah, and what's wrong with that, you mm. know? So anyway, Sean saved the sport. You know, Sean saved the sport. It, it was going, not that it was dying, it was going a certain way. Yeah. And uh, just his attitude, how he, you know, and like, you know, Nicholas Vullier had been winning world championships time and time again. And in Cairns in 1996, when Sean Palmer was this far off him, I think it was only point something of a second. Really? And they go, oh, well, you know, um, you know, Nicholas Vullier had got him on the on the um, finish straight because it was flat. No, Sean Palmer was actually quicker than Nicholas Vullier. On really? The and that's what I'm going, wow, this this guy's rad, you know. And he, um, you know, he must have lost it somewhere at that point, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, which is you nothing. Know? But, you know, people like Eric Carter and, you know, all, you know, there was so many people that were coming up through um, the, the ranks in those years sort of done it on that track in Cairns because had a little bit of peddling, unfortunately, on the finish line, but it was also pretty rad. It there was nothing like it in the world, as in severity. No, the severity of the course, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy that it's still held up. Like that mm, world's track is. Mm. There's a lot of it that's still there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's that's <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah, you know, and and I, I still remember back in those days when we were working on that trail, and uh, you know when the the riders had their 
their walk up the track, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday, and I remember Steve Peter, never met him before. He said to me, he said, what happens here? He said, you, look, you've got a descent. Which way are we going? Because we were in a valley, you know, yeah. near, you know and, and the track went up there and went up there too. He said, how could this be? You're going up, you know, where do you go from here? I said, well, you're doing probably 80, 90 kilometres an hour before here, and that's just a speed bump. Don't worry about that. And, uh, you know, he saw that after a while too. But he was very emotional when he uh, was walking the trail. He, and I'd never met him before. And that's a beautiful thing about Steve Pete. He's very honest and he says it how it is. But he was n- nearly tears in his eyes when he looked at the trail. You know, he said, I've never seen anything like this, you know, coming from the UK. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the, you knew that he knew that where the sport had to go. You mm. know? So there was almost like an appreciation of the people that built the trail in a way because he was like, fuck, this is what we need. Like, mm. this is real. Yeah, yeah. And it, look, the track has started, you know, it's it stayed together over the years. And I think mm. that's, you know, back to track building, sustainability, that's where we learned how to build trails. I, I, you know, anywhere between five and six metres of rain a year sometimes. Mm. If you don't build a trail right, which we didn't, you know, back in those early days in 1990, you know, started just cutting off, you know, going up, cutting trails on old logging tracks and stuff like that and clearing the trees out of the way. Well, that'll do. But they weren't designed for mountain bikes. Yeah. Know? A lot of trails, uh, it may seem like a good idea to chuck them on a bench that is an old logging track, but that's a logging track. So you're adopting something else. Yeah. You need design-specific trails if they're going to last forever. And uh, that's when we started learning. Uh, corrugated iron, reverse grades, arc to arc, all that type of stuff, you know. Yeah. If you're going to build something, build it forever. Uh, was it a, it's, I guess it's a different topic, but was it a trip when Rat Boy came here for the, <laughs> the was it 14 or 15? Yeah. I was one of them, yeah, or whatever yeah. the cans. And you guys had kind of that after party thing and Benny Bramham was there. Yeah. And then Rat Boy, who was like basically top, top, top level of the sport, yeah. starts freaking out on Benny Bramham. Yeah. He's like, fuck, you're Benny Bramham. Who's As, like... Australia's a, first, no, the world's first free rider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, but poor bugger. <laughs> but like, yeah. was that like crazy, the influence Surreal. that mud cows had to yeah. like, that's a dude at the top of the sport. And we live in an era now where like, mm. if you go on pink bike, there's like 15 videos a day. Yeah. But mud cows and Benny Bramham sending it on a hardtail. Yeah, lives forever. Like he's stuff. an immortal. Oh, well, Benny Bramham and you know Wade Lewis started it. You know, Wade Lewis uh, was Wade for was it. Wade like the full OG hardtail dude. Oh, yeah, everything about Wade. You know, he he got me into mountain biking. Really? Know? Oh yeah, first mountain bike ride. You know, he he took what did he do? He took him and his mate Collett, Ryan Collett. Uh, Grabbed some scooters that they had some. Ryan had a jog 50cc Yamaha and Wade had a Zuma 50cc. <laughs> they rode up Copperload Range up to you know to the to the lake, and went down crystals in the rain. Really on these scooters and came back you know frothing and screaming and you know bleeding you know wait a while scratching all over him and everything like that. Came back and said we just found the craziest track you know it's the nastiest thing and we did it on scooters you know. We should take our mountain bikes up. And I had a mountain bike. He had a mountain bike. We never rode them on the dirt. These things that they had fat tires and they were just cruisy when you go into town for a coffee or something like that. And yeah. we went, oh, that'll be cool. So we went up there. And lucky enough, we got some imagery of that still. And uh, that's when we first started riding. And Wade was the instigator. He was the guy that believed uh, that there's more can happen. You know, more things can, ha- can happen out of something. You know, he was excitable. You know what Wade's like. Yeah, extremely yeah. excitable. And uh, that's when we started mountain biking. So he influenced a lot of stuff. But back then, yeah, with the jumps, big like he was the first person to jump. You know these, you know, backflips and all these type of things in the dirt. And then Benny Bramham came along. You know, and I used to 
disturbed because Wade went away and I used to stir up Benny Bramham. You know, he was 16 years old on a mountain bike and if he's looking at something, doesn't know if he should hit it or not, I'd say, well, Wade would do it. <laughs> you know, just like Eddie would go, you know. So, yeah. uh, and that would really eat into Benny and he'd go and do it. And poor bloke, you know, he he'd actually... Popped a couple. Yeah, but Jesus, natural rider, you know. And a lot of that era, you know, these guys are 45, you know, you know now and they're... They're still smashing things, you know, really good riders. They haven't ridden a bike for probably a little while, you know, Rodney Mears and them, they'll get on a bike and they'll just pin it, you know, and I think that's great. It's crazy that Cairns does that, man, like even for, so like for when I went to America, like I'd kind of only just recently got back to riding hmm. a bunch yeah. and I'd ride and guys would be like, oh mate, you're pinning it. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I'm a guppy. In, yeah. the, in a fucking fish tank full of Oscars in cans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like the level up here mm. of guys, like you've got all these undercover pinners that like they don't really travel to races, they don't really do a lot of like big events and yeah, shit to where yeah. they're like trying to build a profile and make a career. No, not at all. But how many was dudes a, in cans just send it? Well, like there was level. a lifestyle. It comes down to that core lifestyle, you know. It was just that that's you ride for the right reasons and one of Benny's terms, you know, ride right for the right reasons. You know, not there to be anybody flash or anything like that. Mick Hanna was is, is one of those people, you know. There's, there's a group of people. And back to that, when we went to the uh, Australian Championships in Canberra and all these people were sort of all road cyclists, you know, that, that rode mountain bikes, there's only one or two other cool people. I remember Jason Pierce, who was the importer for GT at the time, and Craig Fisher. And he was a, you know, core BMXer and a couple other people. Everybody else, well, you are cool, but everybody else uh, didn't get it, sort of, if you yeah, know what I mean. Yeah, you know? wasn't thinking what you were thinking. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, so to have that core group in Cairns, they were just breed, you know, we're so far away from the rest of Australia. Yeah, we yeah. Could do, And that's the thing about remote, remoteness. That's a great thing, being remote. Yeah. Because you grow into a site, certain type of person, you know. Um, languages happen that way. People, communities, you know, attitudes. You know, if you have a couple of key, in, you know, um, sort of ignition points, people will sort of replicate that and follow through and that's where creativity comes from you know with a lot of people and there hey, is there i got a whiz really bad yeah do it that's okay. all good <laughs> that's all good welcome back to the glenn jacobs hour yeah you are now listening to the sound the smooth sounds <laughs> is that working right yeah you just got to flick that other one down yeah oh, there that's it, is, that's, yeah. it Mike. that's it um needed ooh. that yeah needed that a bit of a wee walk hey uh, yeah yeah i don't even know where we were but what you said about um Rat boy, yeah. To watch him grow through the sport and uh, people like you know even Greg Menard. Actually, Benny Branham and I were uh, doing the World Cup thing in Europe. Uh, sorry, in in the US, and uh, we had a break between one World Cup and another. I think it was about four weeks, so we just hung out in the US. Could be three or four weeks. And one of the UCI officials said, "Oh, listen, um, you know what are you doing between World Cups?" And um, you know, we we're just hanging out, going to Tarianis's place, and. Uh, um, hang out with Petey and Warner and all those guys and uh, Taylor Muxlow and there's you know um, oh, I remember Taylor Muxlow yeah she's rad she's really rad um, yeah so we're all uh, hanging out there and he said look I've got this guy from um, young fella from South Africa mm. you know I can't look after him I've got to go back to Europe can he hang out with you guys I said well we're going to be running a muck and everything like that so he said, all right, no worries. And he hung out and, it, you know, he's quiet and, you know, but he was a pinner on a bike. Like we got to Sheep Hills with Brian Lopes and all them. And it's like, whoa, this guy can, this guy can ride, you know. I thought he was just a rider. He was, I think he was maybe a South African champion or something like that at 16 or 17, but he was out to ride the World Cups. So then, uh, yeah, and then um, he just drove us up the wall. 
for a couple of weeks we drove from like uh, i think we went from california right up to oh we went up to uh, snoqualmie up in um up near seattle and uh just da, 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 you know fella that age just frothing on everything and just yeah. you know like miles like you said down in um yeah, 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 something yeah. that's just ah, oh, no, great, you know. But uh, anyway, um, to watch Greg do what he did over the years and gradually, you know, oh look, he's he's in tenth, and then he's in fifth, and then he wins a World Cup, and then he keeps on going. I think he's one of the, along with Steve Pete, one of the best. Yeah, I think he is the all-time dude now. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's good to catch up with him and hang out, and uh, we've got a lot of really good stories. But uh, he is a one funny, funny guy. He he cracks you up every time you hang out with him. But Rat Boy, to see Rat Boy come up through through the ranks too and yeah it was special like you said you know he was here at a barbecue at my place and uh we got everybody around for the world cup you know and had those big old steaks in those days you know when we had big old steaks and uh <laughs> um and uh benny bramham turned up and he was like oh he was awestruck you know yeah. like, there's benny bramham and i think simon ford was there and rodney mears and stuff like that so it was like whoa shit you know and unbeknown to me he actually grew up with mud cows mm. and he just sat in the lounge and watched mud cows, you know, on the screen, on the, on, on the television, you know, and he was just frothing about everything, you know. And his story was he, is, he was waiting for mud cows to come out. And one of the magazines, um, you could buy the magazine and get mud cows with it. Oh, uh, UK yeah. mountain bike or something like mountain bike UK. Yeah. And uh, he said he was going on two weeks holidays with his parents, going somewhere in Spain. And he thought, well, you know, obviously he didn't want to go there or didn't, you know, he just wanted to ride bikes but they were just going on holidays so the only thing he he had to hold on the mountain biking was his video and uh so they got to a news agency before they boarded the plane and uh he bought the magazine and he got the video with you know mud tattoo probably or something like that and he was just frothing you know he got there they didn't have a video player <laughs> or dvd player or whatever yeah. it was you know and uh he said he had to go through the whole holidays without watching it you know but to have somebody like that as a fan you know that at, at that age you know because it was all sort of dead and gone by the late 90s you know yeah but uh it was a good time yeah but just to have that influence over a dude that then goes on to become hmm. a world champion and yeah. you know you kind of you get that um that I guess like validation to be like fuck he actually watched that yeah you yeah. know what I mean it's kind of because it, I know that you don't think of yourself as like that mm. this crazy influential mm. person but yeah. it's like imagine how many kids you influence mm. you know from all, those well, all over the world that's in that generation that you know yeah. we are the mud cow generation dude my I've still got a mud cow underscore man 45 at hotmail.com <laughs> that's fucking an email I've still got and when you look back at them they, they, you know you, that was rude you know like, I mean as in, as in like you know filming quality and everything like we just wanted to make it I was influenced by a few videos like um, the green iguana and uh, a few surf videos in Australia that they didn't really take themselves too seriously they didn't care yeah and everything wasn't about the best glossy you know high definition shot by no means we wanted that we just wanted like you pull a camera out of your pocket film some shit which a lot of people love now you know mm. but the main thing is about the culture yeah it's about like don't take yourself too seriously you know ride for the right reasons have a fucking good time you know but don't these pol- I mean it's great to watch these polished movies it's fantastic you know and to see you know because there's they're real filmed artistry and, oh, in it, and, but and the skill of writers and everything sure that's one thing but there's not enough culture movies out there yeah and look that's where YouTube 
you just click on something and watch it now and you go yeah that's it you know and did the Vanzacs you know the guys I was going to just bring that up did mm. you see that like the New Zealand dudes that kind of did like their own mud cows thing yeah yeah and they you know Ed Masters and those guys they saw it and they went no this is this is real you know and it is you know it is that's that's what a lot of surfing movies and snowboard movies were like that you know so why not mountain biking yeah it was such a crazy I mean I know it was like just such a huge influence for me and all my mates and mm. like you know you got Ronning and Kvarik jumping over the Oh, yeah. train well, line and it was Michael Ronnie that actually um, uh, basically invented the cable cam you know yeah. I told him wouldn't it be great if we had a, a camera that could follow the whole World Cup course down you know we could actually from a downhill's perspective you know just follow it on something going from a cable from one pole like a light post to a tree or something like that and uh, it must have soaked in after a while he came back uh, you know we used to hang out a lot in Cairns and he came over and said I've got this idea about a camera on a cable you know, from what you said, and uh, it was way beyond me what he said. Whoa, that's a good idea. Mm. And we first started with a camera taped to a, a piece of PVC that was just cut off, like it was taped to that, on a clothesline, tied between two, three, two, uh, two trees, and you just threw it, and he rode. And hopefully the camera was, you know, and we just went from there and got some the most amazing footage. Never again, there was never any angles like that in mountain biking ever. Yeah. You know, and to see that. I remember oh. that um, the like one of my all-time favorite movie parts ever was Bryn's section where it started at Waterblow with Rocky Horror, oh yeah, and yeah. then ended at the bottom of um, of Smithfield, like before the car park in like the pine forest. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah. was like that song, like everything that was like to me that was like the perfect yeah. movie part. Yeah. And Bryn was on that old GT iDrive. Yeah. yeah, it was the Papa Roach song, yeah. and I actually like. When I, even the last the part one of this I guess when we were talking about music like that um, I remember getting that Papa Roach album mm. and it was that was a hidden song yeah. on the on the album and I was like going through the album like man I can't find this song like, all I wanted was this song <laughs> just fall asleep it'll come but yeah, and that, yeah that's like pretty much what happened it yeah. was like at the very end of yeah. the song but it's funny that it just goes back to exactly what we're saying like those songs and feelings like i'll, I'll never the ever smell. forget yeah, i'll never forget that section of brin yeah. doing that and it just felt so far ahead mm. of its time yeah. you know what i mean yeah it was it was i was really cool bad funk stripe did it for me you know on mud cow too with michael ronning you know going down coranda mm. you know it was just i don't know gave everybody when we played it myself and a lot of other people goosebumps when you watched it because it was like hang on that's a different angle. Yeah. That that mountain biking looks really cool, you know, from that angle. And then people saw that and then it replicated and now we've got well, everything. Even Brad Jones, my nephew, came up with a thing called a stalker. And to this day, I've never seen anything like it. You know, it was a, like a... And the thinking behind it was so good, you know. It was a kidney belt with this arm that came out the back, a big aluminium and CNC cut arm and the camera sitting there. And it just floated. It sort of stayed stabilised as he rode and it was sitting right back there. And GoPro does that now with a lot of, in the way yeah. they do stuff. But it was beyond anything. And that was in the 90s, you know. As a lot of good thinking came out. Like anywhere where but you I have core that, groups of people, yeah. And it come out of the seclusion though. Yeah, Because you Remotus, couldn't, yeah. you couldn't, like, and I wondered too though if there's like a flip side of that to where like, say if you guys were in SoCal. Yeah. Making mud cows. Yeah. And you did exactly what you did. You invented all this shit but it was in yeah. Sheep Hills or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys would probably be the, the um, fucking Gorilla Flicks films. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Johnny Knoxville kind of... Because it yeah. almost was like Jackass 
10 yeah. years before yeah. Jackass. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it was, you know. And uh, also, we, one of our distributors in the US said to us that the guys from... Um, what, was it, what were those moto movies back then? Krusty um, Demons. Krusty. Flesh Wound Films. Krusty, yeah. yeah. They were influenced by that. In my cows, you know. So that's what our importer said anyway. So that was cool, you know. But look, I often look at that and go, well, was it 340 million people in North America? You know, we only had 22 million people. Um, we were on the edge with a lot of stuff. Guys were making like full suspension, you know, downhill bikes and, you know, upside down forks and disc brakes and everything before you even had suspension anywhere. Yeah. So they were experimenting, but they didn't have the the platform to like take exactly, it to a yeah. to a um, commercial level because exactly. I, I, I always wondered that like even when i was young i would wonder that like mm. kind of the like economics behind it yeah because i was like man if glenn did that in the u.s it mm. would be massive yeah but i bet if you were in the u.s you probably wouldn't have done it couldn't because the thing that bred it was the remoteness yeah. because you didn't have a choice. Yeah. But I'm sure over there you probably would have just got what yeah. was available. But here nothing was available. So you had to get a clothesline and a PVC pipe <laughs> and some duct tape. And not but, know what you're doing either. You don't know what the deliverable was. You sort of know what, what you wanted to do and see if it worked. And there's probably plenty of things like that. But look, there's hotspots like that all over the world. You know, the core group of people are doing rad things, you know, really cool things, you know. Um, and uh, I think they, they were spiking all over the world around that same time. And we were lucky enough, you know, um, we had you know, people like Steve Blick from Oakley. Yeah. Um, who was GT at the time. but um, And Hans Ray, you know, people don't realise how, how core Hans Ray is and was and what he's done for mountain biking globally. You know, he's... I'm lucky enough to call him a good close friend, you know, mm. and he's, uh, what he's done is uh, just got people out there and he's pushed, made things happen all over the place, you know, and uh, and he's got a lot, you know, he's still doing a lot of things, you know, the Discovery TV with the, yep. you know, all those big trips and, and uh, just him himself, like it was, you know, trial stuff was great, you, mm. know? Um, you know, that's pretty hard by itself, but uh, just as a mountain biker, you know, the amount of people he's influenced is crazy. He is like the, um, he's like the Olympic decathlon dude of mountain (laughs) mountain biking. Like he Mm. does every discipline. Yeah, that's true. Like he does, well, when I last hung out with him, he was getting, we played golf and he was training for a road bike race through the Alps. Ah. And then he was going to a downhill race and yeah. then he would ride his enduro bike at his trails in Laguna yeah. and then he was going from there to do a trials thing. like he is the back in the day Bruce Jenner of, of yeah. mountain biking you know yeah, what I mean yeah. like the um, pre-hormones Bruce Jenner of like he was yeah, the yeah. he's the god of yeah. every discipline yeah like he kind of was maybe he was a guy that really opened up a lot of eyes to like what you could the different things you could achieve Mm. in mountain biking and Mm. i guess like because mountain biking if you say you're a mountain biker like that's a really broad definition these days and it's kind of because of because like because of hans because now you've got enduros you've got Mm. downhill you've got cross country you've got like that dirt jump guys like Uh, it's it's pretty broad yeah look one thing that always used to bug me about mountain biking people not knowing what mountain biking was you know some of my best mates you know um your dad, dad. You, you used to say, what are you still playing with them silly mountain bike things, you know, thinking that they were a bike from Kmart. You just ride that because of Nicole Kidman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> BMX and, uh, Bandit. BMX Bandits. But um, yeah, look, I remember seeing a story in the paper once and it said uh, 
you know, uh, a lady had a purse snatched from a footpath. She was walking along, and a, um, somebody snatched her purse, and the the you know the offender was seen riding away on a mountain bike, you know. And then next, you know, came on the news a mountain biker did this and a mountain biker did that. It's like it's like that whole stupid comments about cyclists mm. on the road. Pay Reggio, you bastard! This and that. Yeah. You know? When anything bad happens, you say motorist. Yeah. You know, because we all know that different people drive different cars and different. We know that the, you know, has, it comes down to knowledge and being smart. Really, you know, you, there's so many different people in the world, and uh, you know they all act differently and they all sort of fall into a certain group. But mountain bikers, you know, you could be a somebody that rides the mountain bike along the footpath, uh, or you could be you know jumping off you know massive cliffs. You can do it. There's so many different things you can do with a mountain bike. Mm. Um, but it's not just mountain biking, you know. It's uh, it does get you know like car drivers, you know. Yeah, it's just like that. You just get generalised. That yeah, group you thing. could be a you know hairdresser in a two door hatch, or you could be you know a, Lewis you Hamilton know, in a Formula One car. Yeah, or a, you know, like a you know a pig hunter in a Land Cruiser, and yeah, yeah, there's all different types of people in all different types of cars, and mountain biking is there too, and that's pretty cool. Where uh, where um yeah, Hounds does all of that. Yeah, and he's. And he makes all of it look so cool yeah. too. You know what I mean? Like he's like, well, he's the kind of guy that will make you want to go to summit Kilimanjaro on a mm. mountain bike. Like he does these. He he almost is like. I was talking about this with Crawley, right? So because yeah. um, one of the guys, Michael Crawley, that came on the podcast a while ago, yeah, yeah, he's friends with Marilyn Manson, yeah, right. And we we're talking about how like crazy his image is and like all this crazy stuff that he does, and it's like it's almost like he's taking these liberties for the greater good mm. he's like we're kind of societies in this little box and he's taken like a massive step outside of it and then it kind of drags everyone along yeah so but he's the weirdo the yeah. outcast kind of guy <laughs> yeah. and he's he's almost like the you know that trailblazer of like mm. you don't even know it's cool yet yeah but it will be cool and he's he did it and by the time it is cool you'll forgot that you'll forget that he was the guy that did it and I feel like Hans is almost like that yeah. in a way because like he will do these things that seem like crazy and obscure but he's like really pulling people along mm. in a way with like you know doing those crazy mountain summits that he does and yeah, the yeah. crazy adventures but it's like he's doing that and that's not attainable to everyone but it's like it sparks something in your brain that mm. you apply to then take yourself a tiny yeah, bit further right. Well, you, you know, you need to drag people kicking, kicking and screaming into the future, you know. Mm. Really, that's what it is. And, well, Hans is doing it via skill, you know. Asvana, like something, Asvana has a little tagline. Um, Yesterday's madman is tomorrow's genius, you know. Yeah, if yeah. You're, if you're ahead of the curve and you're moving forward and you're doing well, you know, people will catch up. Sometimes it'll take years, you know. Years and they and might have they might have forgot that you were the dude that took that leap first, yeah, yeah, and you'll yeah. always just be the crazy dude. Well, look, it's easy if you can see if you can see a deliverable, you can see an outcome. That means it's easy. Yeah, and that's why you know you with creativity and inventions and you know anything, uh, you know forward thinking. If you can see it happening, you just got to get there. You don't know, you can't explain how you're going to get there, but you can see the deliverable. You know and uh, I think Hans has been part of that. He can see that the sport need to be a lot bigger than it was, you know. And um, certainly, uh, like him and, and Carmen and where he lives and, you know, he's being influenced and a lot of great friends and, mm. you know, and such a 
he brings so many people into the sport like Timmy together from, too oh yeah you know yeah. like Timmy from Rage like he brings those he like kind of is you're you're a guy like that as well like you you're like a, yeah. a guy that brings people in to you know like I don't know how many people I've met at the bottom of a ride yeah that you're like yep come for a ride and then it's like oh this is this 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 and then you kind of all like Shawnee's a good example of that but like have you, you ever, brought me and Shawnee together yeah, you know yeah. have you ever found that like uh, you know you're going for a ride and you might have like uh, 10 or 15 people there you just assume everybody knows each other yeah yeah because you know them all you know yeah. and it's like uh, that's funny like that isn't it you know but yeah look um, Hans I remember him ringing me that one time from the States he goes oh I've got a mate coming out to Australia you want to take him for a ride I said yeah sure you know um, I'm down in Melbourne and we can go for a ride he said yeah well he's in town for like four days so I said alright no worries give me his number and I rang him and and uh, we organised a time to ride and everything and he said oh you want to come to the show I said what show is this you know he goes oh I'm playing in a band I was oh I was raging against a machine I said oh shit I did not know that <laughs> you know and same with Foo Fighters too you know you just say other oh, guys are coming over they want to go for a ride you know and he's but you know, that's when you realise that everybody's the same. Yeah. No big deal, you know. And, you know, uh, the the main thread is your emotional attachment to something and your emotional attachment is the biggest thing, you know. it's You love something, you just do it. Yeah, and in this case, mountain biking, you know. Um, mm. You do it for the right reasons. And everything else everybody else does, it doesn't really matter. When it comes down to mountain biking, you know, I went and saw Rage, uh, well, Prophets yeah. of Rage the other night in Brisbane a couple of months with you. Yeah. yeah and Michael Rodding, you know. And you remember all Tim could talk about was, it was funny. He was frothing about his bike, you know, and he was so tired from the show. And the guys were like pulling him. They're like, "We got to go, we got to go," because they were flying to Japan the next day. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. he was like, he was like, "Oh, I'm sorry, guys, I can't spend much more time going." And uh, and yeah. and then I think you were like, "Oh, it's a shame you weren't here longer. We could have taken you for a ride." And then he's like, oh, I'm just all about the e-bikes at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, like, and then we were yeah. like, because we were talking, I think we were talking about it with Ronnie and being like, Timmy would be the dude that hates e-bikes. Like, because yeah. he's the I just core. thought he would be. Yeah. yeah we, were like, we just assumed. And then you were like, e-bike. You like e-bikes? Yeah. You were an e-bike. I got an e-bike. Okay, <laughs> and then he was like telling us crank lengths and like yeah. the whole band is just like shipping beep, out beep, behind beep. us. Like, yeah, yeah go, going to fuck? Japan. We got to go. And he's like, we got to go. And he's like, just wait, we're talking about e-bikes, you know. Yeah, and he was frothing. Wasn't that funny? Yeah, yeah we, that. we couldn't yeah. get him to stop talking about no. it. He was loving it. Yeah, yeah, like all his crank lengths and all this different stuff that he's done, and like he's got his wife's bike that he tries stuff oh, on as well. And he, yeah, he just knew he just knew what he loved. Yeah, you know. And it's funny about Gore, Stephen Gore. Talked to me the other day. I was, you know, we're talking about something, and uh, he said he just loves his e-bike. And mm. I'm like, oh. but when you ride those things flat out, don't go and don't dawdle pin them like a moto you know yeah. as in like you know put some energy behind them and everything like that a lot of fun and we talked about that before yeah what was the first bike that came along that you went like oh fuck this is gonna let us do this the RTS. things that GT. we wanted to was GT RTS yeah yeah look it had you suspension one of them eh? yeah I got one at home yeah I just got it done up it was great yeah um, yeah look it only had an inch and a half of suspension it had you know, rock shop mag 21s on the front and uh, had XT I think it had a few things going for it but it was like we were all GT back in those days through um, you know Zaskar and everybody had a GT and um, they were just uh, I don't know they got it you know in those days it was just they were the they, they were, were the ones they were a little cutting edge thing and when the RTS came out like Trek had a uh, Rodney Mears had one that had a pogo stick type of shock which was great you know and there was a lot of bikes that didn't work but a lot of 
did, you know, and the GT was it, the RTS. And uh, years later, when we we're building four cross tracks and everything, I was talking to Eric Carter about it because you needed a. The four cross tracks were like pretty rough and rugged, and they were, you know, nice smooth sections, and, uh, and then it turned into really like rough stuff. Like kind of janky stuff. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I said to Eric Carter, "This is years after the RTS." You know, I said, "You should have an RTS for, you know, four cross because it's sort of like a hard tub. It's got a bit of give, you know." Yeah. And he brought one out to a race in Europe or in America somewhere and tried it out, and it worked well for him. I think he won. But yeah, that was that was one of the first ones. And then look. There were some spikes all the way along. I know Intense had a, you know, that M1. that, that I had one of those bad boys, Adam Hunter. Amazing, you know, um, mountain cycle. But we're in this era now where they're vintage and retro, you know, mainly vintage, anything pre-2000, you know, and uh, they're a lot of money for them. People, yeah. And just like we never thought Japanese motorbikes would, well, who would ever keep a Japanese motorbike? But, you know, I'm still looking for a TT500C, mm. you know, from 1975. And you think I could find one? You know, there's not, and if, I don't think anybody that's got one, they want to, you know, keep them. DM, yeah, it would be DM 20 grand, Glenn, you know. Hey? DM Glenn or Gypsy Tales if anyone's listening and they've got one. That they want to <laughs> a sell. real one. A real one. It's got to be a real one. Yeah, it's got to be a real one. He yeah. paid top dollar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because well, they, they brought out XTs and things like that and people would just go, oh, yeah, put it in there. And yeah. No, no, I know what a TT is, you know. And they were, they're pretty rad. Motorbikes are... Yeah, motorbikes motor and mountain bikes sort of cross-pollinate, don't you think? Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that... Um, it's that elbow thing, you know, jet skis, motorbikes and mountain bikes, you know, handle... Yeah. Yeah, that's like what we were saying the other day. It's just getting something underneath. Yeah, underneath the ground's got to come under. Elbows yeah. are out, and what was the um, like? What would you say would be like the first modern bike? Like the really good was because like for me the M1. Like when I was a kid, mm. that was my first downhill bike. I bought an M1 off Adam Hunter, yeah. fifteen hundred bucks, and it had a crack in the frame, yeah. so I had to take it straight to ninety. Ninety welded it up. And then that was my bike, and I think I rewelded it like fifteen times after that. Oh, definitely. But like, yeah. was those like was that kind of like maybe that first like super modern era of like really capable downhill bikes? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there was the mountain cycle also that came out really early, and that was like whoa, that was a big monocoque frame and everything. Um, but yeah, the intense, uh, you know, um, Jeff Schreiber, you know, he, he he was way ahead of the time of his time, and he, he still is, you know, he's mm. a great guy and. Uh, that bike, yeah, that was. I would say that would be it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, look, uh, they all sort of changed, you know, about five, eight. I mean, about eight, nine years ago again. And you tell anybody that, like, you know, you've probably got friends who've got mountain bikes and they they've kept them for three or four or five mm. or six years or something like that. Oh no, they suit me and everything. No, they change every two or three years and they change for the better. Best to sort of keep on, you know, keep on buying the latest model, the geometry and the. Um, the evolution, you know, with shocks and well, you've rode the new Stumpy, right? Like yeah, you've got amazing. the you've got the old well, the old one. Like yeah. it's it almost seems wrong calling it the old one because yeah, how good is that bike still? Yeah. Like I've got one of those, and I'm just like I have to get the new Stumpy, yeah. like because of it's just those little things. Like now I can put the rear shock in it that I mm. want, and you can kind of change stuff. The geometry changes, the stiffness yeah. changes, and like you don't think like and especially dad was always like man it's a fucking good bike if you're a good rider you can ride it ride anything know. yeah but nowadays like mm. you've rode that new stumpy like it's, it's fantastic it's ridiculous it's and amazing it's, yeah. but you'd think just two weeks ago how <laughs> happy were you with you know the ride before yeah. you rode the new stumpy yeah how happy were you with the old stumpy well, the technology like uh you know what specialized have been doing with bikes you know they're just like a lot of companies are just 
you know, better and better. I don't think you can buy a really bad bike anywhere. You know, no, you're uh, right. In, in that in those price ranges, you know. But um, again, like Coranda downhill, you know, we rode in nineteen ninety. You know, and I've got books at home to show the times of what the first race was, and I think it was five minutes or no, no. Yeah, it could be five minutes and two seconds or something. Basically, we're riding nearly the same track, you know. Yeah. So how could 28 years later, 28 years older, um, and, uh, you know, you're riding something that was a hardtail or something like an RTS, you know, then, but you're actually going faster and doing better times and you're 28 years older, you know. The times alone, you know, you know shaved a minute or two off, the, off, off those times, you know, and you find that anyway, like I'm riding better than I've ever ridden before, yeah. you know, and it's technology. There wouldn't be, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about mountain bikes if they hadn't changed at all. If we were still riding RTSs, nobody, you'd just go, stuff this, you yeah. know, this is hard work, you know, this is really hard work. Yeah, you'd, you know, be riding something, you know, but not many people would be riding, you know, not like now. These bikes basically pull you up hills, yeah, and shoot you down them. You know they're fantastic now. All the different bike brands, you know, they're they're just it's amazing. And building trails to suit them too, mm. or the other way around. I don't know. You know. Well, it's crazy to me because like I had my M1 when mm. I was racing downhill, and I was just going super hard at that. Yeah, and then I got into motocross, and I had yeah. like this like ten year gap of yeah. of no mountain bike, and then I got that stumpy. And it's like this little bike. It's yeah. this little trail bike. Yeah. And I'm fucking sending it compared to what I could Did have done. Did you find you like, kept it? Like you, you kept your skill? Well, I think I got, I don't know. There's a weird thing that I think when I was a kid, like I was talking to, you know, Tyson, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Tyson about it because even he said when we went riding, he's like, you're way better than you used to be. Mm. And when I was a kid, I don't know what, I don't know what, like I just didn't have the mentality to like let go and go. Yeah as fast as i can now yeah. it's like i don't know there's a it's just well, a mentality <laughs> thing that, that, that ch- just changes you know the you know the consequences really yeah but know. no but i'm i should be i should have been faster as a kid yeah when you don't care as much yeah but now i, I don't know something's happened to where i'm a much better rider now mm. but i wonder too if it is the bike as well because mm. those bikes are just like it's 150 mil travel for a stumpy well, it, but yeah. you can do i do all the big drops and yeah, all the big uh, jumps yeah. and all the big shit that i was doing on a full seven inch downhill bike back in the day so it's like i don't know whether it is the like the bikes that help you and then i guess as you get older and your skills but i definitely didn't lose the skill of mm. mountain biking from when i was a kid i can still wheelie for mm. a kilometer i can still all those like well, what, base skills stay there watching your ride you know you can see that you're a better better rider mm. you know and i think uh, that you know giving it a break for that long like you rode a lot when you were a kid. Yeah. You know? And then you had that moto break. And I mean, motos and mountain bikes cross-pollinate. No, I think um, so, yeah. But you sort of certainly get back on a bike. And uh, look, I think one of the biggest changes is it breaks. You can yeah. actually stop now. Yeah. You couldn't before. You Man, know? I remember I used to, I had these old <laughs> shitty haze brakes. Oh, yeah. And I saved up for a, um, I bought them off pump and pedals. It was like $500 yeah. for a, or 460 bucks or something for a Shimano XT four pot. Yeah. Um, front brake because yeah. I and as soon as money. I got that yeah. thing I just went fuck this changes everything because yeah, yeah. that was like that was a huge difference and they're way better now yeah but look it's good to see how things are going and some people go well where will it stop you know where why does it have to yeah you know? yeah well why, yeah like you can't see like uh you know technology you know it's gonna top out soon 
But I remember when I was a kid, I saw a magazine cover and it was on a, um, it, it was, I think it could have been, you know, Trial and Track magazine in Australia. And they had tested a KE175 dual speed trail bike and it had a chrome mudguard and stuff like that. And the big letters on the front cover is like, after testing this bike, where can bikes go from here? Yeah. And as a 16 year old kid, I've gone, that, right. that, I already knew that that bike was a bucket of shit because yeah. it had been out for six months and the evolution, it had already changed so much. Bikes had got so much better in like a year, like six months or a year. And that's when you realize that nothing, you know, nothing stays the same. It always mm. has to evolve and get better. Certainly some things, you know, form and function and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it, uh, they will keep on changing. Everything will get better. And uh, that's the exciting thing about mountain biking. So will trails. They'll always get better and they'll adapt and you'll try different things, you know. And uh, so it's a rad industry like that. I think that what you said about like every bike will be an e-bike. Mm, I think so. That, that's just got to well, not, not the way it is, you know, look at the mobile phone back in those yeah. days, you know, you bought a brick, you know, and then a phone sat on top of it and it last, you know, it was just, a, I mean, a handset, you know, and it's massive, but now phones are, you know, they're more than just a phone. Well, everything's got to evolve and give it time, you know, and, uh, you know, even if you don't want, like, like the Stumpy now, the latest Stumpy, right? I reckon probably in five or eight years time, um, you could say that's the latest e-bike that yeah. weight and size and everything yeah, like yeah. that and you may just go you may find out that may you know the battery power is certainly the technology the way it's going and everything like that you know um make things smaller and lighter and you may just want a bike that you only got an hour's worth of battery power and only cuts in when you want it yeah to you know and and uh well yeah, I, like. I think it's i think it's going that way europe has you know that you know that um the bike show I went to last year, you know, in, in, in Germany, it was just like, whoa, you know, um, Eurobike. You know, everything was e-bikes, but they're really big and heavy. Yeah. But they'll get there. I like um, the idea of having like that little clutch to engage mm. because like there's some of the times on e-bikes where it's kind of that awkward all or nothing mm. thing. And when you're on like kind of steep technical, like uh, the uh, S section up to Black Snake, yeah, at Smithfield, you can like, put yeah. like even that on an e-bike is kind of tricky because it's so tight and you have to keep that pedal going and it kind of lifts you and you get yeah. like that weird understeer. Yeah. So I think that there's going to be so many little developments, like even having like a tiny little lever that's like this little clutch that you can kind of slip that power yeah. on. Obviously, it's not going to you know you don't want to clutch it like in turns or whatever be useless. But for those uphill, uphill mm. starts as well, like if you get caught on a real steep section and you kind of have to get back on the pedals and you're in the top gear. Even and you're stopping lifting. a little bit. You know, there's a section on uh, um, uh, just above Whiskers of Flaherty. Um, yeah, um, there's like a little rock ledge on Minders, you yeah. know, and you're riding along. It's fairly steep as it is and you just got to pop over. If you stop pedaling, you stop. Yep. You know, where. Uh, standard bike if you stop pedaling it'll take you through you know momentum and you just start again but if you stop pedaling and then you start with some e-bikes there's that little fraction, fraction yeah. half a second where there's nothing and then it, well that's enough to, to make you stop because yep. it's a fairly heavy bike but the, those things will change yeah you know, it's going to be exciting to see oh yeah you know and, and uh, maybe you know I don't know how to you know maybe it's like looking at uh, um, yeah, as, as we talked about before the if you're not into them, what you know? What do you, what do people complain about twenty niners and and dropper posts and yeah, you know this and that and the e-bikes and everything like that? Because really, the core bike is nothing. You could say a single speed, no suspension if you want to. You know, yeah, yeah. Like what, where do you reduce it to? Yeah, where does the line know, stop? Yeah. And what you know again? Um, certainly, when you look at them now, 
You know, it's just like, oh, they're big, heavy, they're silly, this and that, but they don't affect you, so shut the hell up. Yeah. You know, just leave it, leave people be because it's going to introduce a whole new market. And um, it's still, trails are still hard, you know, they're not easy. You still have to climb up a hill, mm. you know. Um, you know, you, And you're probably going to have to climb up more of them. And rightfully it. so, and yeah. rougher, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the e-bike is, is here to stay, and uh, I think it comes down to law, what's going to happen with them, and, mm. you know, how you can chip them and they go faster. And, you know, if you're riding on the road, you know, you're boosting up at like 40, 50, 60 kilometres an hour. Well, that's, that's an issue. Yeah. Because you're on a motorbike then, but even though you're pedalling, you need help. Man. You know, some, yeah, helmet uh, laws and stuff like yeah, that coming things in. things like that. And, yeah, but um, look, that's something that somebody's going to work out somewhere along the line. We're talking about stuff that's in the bush. You know? Yeah. <laughs> when you were like, let's say, doing, let's pick the Olympics time frame, yeah, right? Yeah. Did you think that you'd be the age you are now and still ride? Like you ride every day. You ride more than I do. Yeah. Well, did, I try to ride every day. Uh, well, yeah. you pretty much do. Yeah, like, yeah. unless there's something that pulls you out of it that yeah, you can't yeah. avoid. But there's not a day that you're... Like, I know from being around you yeah. where there's not a day goes by where you if, you... if you can, you're not, like, doing Clifton's at six in the morning to before yeah. you breakfast and work. Yeah. You're not just going to opt into a couch day. No, like, you know no, no I mean? such thing, Did yeah. you think, like, say in, you know, t- the year 2000 when you did the Olympics that you mm. would still be frothing this hard on mountain bikes and have the ability to, to still ride as much as you do? Uh, yeah, look, I, I never thought I like, a mountain biking, I couldn't understand how people wouldn't ride bikes or you have nothing to, if you couldn't ride, at least, uh, you know, have something to do with mountain biking, go, go build a trail or go work on a trail or something like that. You have this whole core sort of passion for bikes, you know. I, I know, yeah, I thought one day it's going to go away. And look, it has gone away in a li- from the volunteer side of things because, you know, you're building trails every day and you're riding and you're doing stuff. So I don't really... Um, do as much volunteering as I should, probably should have and I thought that was never going to happen mm. but um, no I never thought I never thought I would uh, like I'm riding more than I, I did 10 years ago five years ago and I think that's got a lot to do with you know me changing my diet you know yeah. um, because you, you have all this energy now and uh, you just want to ride more and you can't sit down you go crazy you know unless you're creating something and your mind's doing something we're just sitting and switching off you know um, no I never I never thought it would be uh, like this I thought that from the Olympics, I always thought I'd be riding bikes, yeah. but I, I thought I'd gradually start slowing up yeah. or gradually start getting over it. Uh, but I'm getting more and more, you know, more and more passion for the industry uh, every day. Yeah, it's always, um, we've talked about this too, like with our generation and the knowledge that we have, yeah. like, a, like specifically my generation, yeah. like I'm about to be 30. Yeah. And I, I said years and years ago, like it was just a random comment I made that I said, oh, because I've never been like, never been like super fit. Yeah. Like I would say I've always been like, a, like an if I went to a gym class, I'd probably be just above average. Yeah. Just as a baseline. But I was never like the top dude that could like, I could get up the hills the fastest. I was never mm. say I was like fit. And I said like, I want to be the fittest I've ever been by my 30th birthday. And that's like coming up. Yeah. Pretty close. And, you are. and I'm, I'm actually there and I was thinking about it um yesterday doing the jiu-jitsu stuff yeah and i was like i, I was fit and i did all these matches and i and congratulations to <laughs> what a rad thing to win stand on top of the box you know cans champ yeah <laughs> but like pan pacific <laughs> the, but, it, but it was like a you know like it was a full random thing to say like i want to be the fittest i've ever been when i'm i'm 30 yeah. but like 
I look at dad and he was not the fittest in his mm. life at 30. It, it was almost like there his generation of people and you probably fell into this at a point yeah. in your life as well. Yeah. You hit that 25 to 30 yeah. and then the, the um, focus and energy that you put into fitness and health and uh, but I guess maybe you just didn't even put fitness like energy into that back then no. because you just kind of had it but yeah. it slowly starts to slip away and I think that in particular like my generation there's more information out oh, there than knowledge, ever yeah. information. to like not let it happen mm. and, and it wasn't like I ended up sticking going like I'm going to do this diet I'm going to do this I'm going to go get a gym membership but it's like almost like we just know it's a lifestyle now. yeah we know and yeah. like you just you know you have to live this lifestyle yeah. and mountain biking fits into it so perfectly it yeah. to where and I think that you've almost found like a little bit of a fountain of youth yeah. to like Kim um, Kim Trad, so Gab's sister. Oh yeah, Kim. yeah, yeah. So she, we, we saw her at Kate's fiftieth last night, yeah. and she was like, "What's Jacob's up to? Is yeah. he still, you know, does he still ride every now yeah. and again?" And I was like, "He rides more than me. Yeah, he rides every single day that he can." And I think you're older than her by yeah. a bit. Yeah, and she it blew her mind, like, because yeah. she doesn't really do a lot of physical stuff. Yeah. So I just think that we're in this time, and I'm where, nothing compared to some people, mm. you know, my age. You know, they, they, you know. Well, Gawley's a good example. Oh, like, he's a, a fucking a machine, man. you know. <laughs> and, you know, that's where you're just like, oh, geez, look at that guy. You know, he can climb anything, you know. But, yeah, look, uh, the information thing is what you were saying is real. You know, it's real. Um, if you don't get out and do stuff, if you don't have a, a broad view of the world, you know, and, and, and information, you know, just, you know, you're doing something wrong, you know. Um, I remember when Coca-Cola came out, to Cairns, you know, in Australia, when it was, you know, I must have been eight or ten or something like that. And the lady next door said, "That's the devil. Don't touch it." You know, we're like, "Yeah, right." You know, no, no, that's the devil. You know, and she was right. Yeah, because she was informed, a very intelligent woman. We just thought it was lolly water. We drank lots of it, and, and there's you, you know, just cigarettes. Started, you know? That cigarettes well. was the same, you know, and everything. And you know, you ebb and flow through, you know, being fit and unfit, and you get those, like you said, you get those spikes to go to gym for a year and you know yeah. lose. X amount of kilos and do this and do that, but it has to be your lifestyle. Yeah, it has like to be. A, yeah. yeah, it has to be everything. And I think the biggest, you know, um, you know, you go to, you go to a furniture store or you go to a store that sells everything, like you know, like Harvey Norman or something like that, you know, and you see people going in there and buying the huge, you know, TV and a lounge, a comfortable lounge. Especially the lounges that have those cup holders, cup holders, and things like that, and go recline for you, dude. Don't do that, you know. Like those things are bad, you know. And look, they're great for resting, and they're great. You need downtime, and sometimes, you know, a friend of mine told me you actually just got to force yourself into that sometimes, but don't make it your life. Yeah, you know. Um, there was a time there that you know you you know your home is the only place you go to just to rest because you're always out doing stuff and then look that that's not always the case for a lot of people but as you said knowledge is king you know knowledge is everything and uh you've got that in front of you now and you can just life's you know the world is changing in a really good way even though you know a lot of movies and cinemas you know show that you know the world is going to end it's got this whole ending thing going yeah. on you know they use it for everything but it's not really yeah we're only specs on this earth you know we're only here for a little short time and uh doesn't matter what happens to us the world is still going to go you yeah. know and uh we'll come back in some other form you know some other plant or animal but um you know so you know the world is good at the moment 
and there's so much stuff you can do, you know, and uh, uh, mountain biking is one of them, surfing, well, I mean. Yeah, because I think the key thing is like, because if you go to the gym, like I don't go to the gym. Mm. I'm not, I don't do that. Yeah. I don't really do, I'll do, I've started doing cardio for like to cut weight yeah. when I have to. Yeah. But again, it's like, it's kind of an outcome based thing, but it's like the things that I'm doing and, and you're like, you were a good example of this for me is that um, you what you were doing is just lifestyle based. Yeah. You weren't doing Strava, counting how many Ks you were doing a week, uh, stressing uh. on if you did a certain amount and what climbs you did and did, mm. it was none of that and i think that when you're purely focused on fitness mm. becomes quite a grind and mm. there's like that comparison to yourself all the time <laughs> but then with what you're yeah. doing it's just like frothing bringing yeah. all these different people together oh tuesday cheapies this blah blah yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. and it's just like always a right oh we could fit in a clifton's run this morning before we have breakfast and yeah, yeah so it's like if, if you do so if you can find something that's lifestyle based mm. and jiu-jitsu has been like that as well because it's like you just you have your class schedule and all the like well you've embraced that haven't you like yeah, that's well, the best thing for you isn't it well i think that the thing with that is obviously i love doing it now um there's something in my brain what it just got me in yeah. so but i think like why i did it was because i finally committed to the australia thing yeah instead of going back and forward yeah. to america and trying to keep that whole thing alive yeah. but in the last 10 years like i've i haven't been able to commit to something Mm. and i had like surfboards there and then i'd come here and i couldn't surf and then i'd have golf clubs and i'd want to play golf but la i don't have my golf clubs here you had layers there. you had lots you, of layers yeah, yeah and everybody needs layers but, yeah. but it just was like i couldn't commit to going to a class but then with jujitsu it's like well this is the schedule and it's the same every week mm. and i'm in the same place every week for the first time in 10 like my entire adult life yeah. like i haven't had a gym membership since i was a kid like in edmonton i had a gym membership in edmonton yeah. for 90 Jeez. bucks for three months or whatever it was yeah, and, like, and that yeah. was a big deal yeah. but i think for me what really sucked me in was like because for me it was so much of a um i would my life was so inconsistent that mm. i was like really craving consistency yeah. and that was just a, a a thing that was super consistent yeah. and i just got lucky to really kind well, of fall head first into the rabbit hole which i generally do anyway. yeah you do yeah you, you really embrace things you know when you you, you go a hundred percent and you've always done that and i think the only time i've ever seen you slow up is when you had that kidney problem mm. really and that's the only time every every time but look you have to focus on some things and uh, having layers is great all these different things but you can't like you know spray like a sprinkler yeah you have to get this is where i'm going and those things will come beside you you know they'll um and again like you know growing up in a place like north queensland i'm watching the sun go down here over the beach and the mountains of Yarrabah and everything like that you know and you you know you you can't but sort of go for a heap of different things you know yeah, yeah so you know it's not your fault you know wanting to try all these different things you know because you know we've grown up in a pretty aggressive um sort of landscape you know crocodiles everywhere and snakes and spiders and trees that'll sting you and stuff like that so you've got this really uh really core outlook on life because of it i think you know it's not bland you, you it's like something's out there wanting to kill you all the time so you go 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 don't you feel that it's like you know what what the opportunities are there you know you know what made me feel like that was when nick came over yeah when nick came over and he was like straight out of new york yeah, yeah. or la full yeah. la dude. Oh, i thought he was from new york no full la oh okay yeah and um so downtown he, la yeah, yeah that's yeah. right yeah so then he comes over and he was just like 
we were in the bush doing the Bartle Freer climb and um, he's like, fuck, is there a lot of snakes and spiders? And he's like fully buying into the stereotype. Yeah. But it's a stereotype for a reason and stereotypes do exist for a yeah, reason. Yeah. There is fucking snakes everywhere, but I've never been bitten by a snake no, in the wild. Like no. I don't think you've, unless you've picked one up. And oh, I've been you. bitten but hundreds no, of times, but not like accidentally. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You were ha- holding oh, the yeah, snakes, yeah, yeah. 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 But like when I, it's that perspective thing and I didn't really realize it. Like we were... Um, we got 5Ks in and I'm like, dude, there's no snakes. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. <laughs> we got like 5Ks into this walk and there was like a fucking 12 foot <laughs> scrub python and I just dropped my backpack and just went straight for this thing and grabbed it. And yeah. I was like, Nick, have a look at this fucking thing, like full yeah, Steve yeah, Irwin yeah. style. And he just went white and was just like, oh, fuck off. And then for there, he was like so on edge about these snakes but to me I I was excited I was like really happy I feel like I got to see something that I like really appreciate but because I grew up here and I know then I'm like oh that's a beautiful animal like oh we're lucky we we just got to see kind of like that it's gonna be a good day yeah Yeah. we're like oh that's beautiful oh man we got we just were blessed to see that then and but then it made me think of his perspective of not coming from here Hmm. to where he was scared of that there was such an unknown thing and it was like and it's said blown that. out of proportion you know yeah. like oh, you gotta watch out you know uh, like yesterday morning just I found this like trail that I'd never been on and going along there and it's, it was a like wallaby track and I just pulled up in this like rocky creek I'm going this is nice look at that oh damn <laughs> and it was like that big just like this like half a meter away from me and it's just like looking up going what was he uh, he was a, a scrubby yeah yeah right, a yeah. scrubby yeah but uh, talking about Tim Comerford, you know, from Rage, we were out riding around Anglesey or Torquay Way, and we came across a, an ant, like a kidna, and we go, look, 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 you yeah. know, and j- jumped off the bike and said, come on over. He said, and he sat on his bike and he said, is there anything else here? You know, and he must have been thinking about it all the time, yeah. you know, and and that's I suppose that's real, you know. Yeah, um, but you know what? Um, to the to finish the the Nick thing, what I was getting at was. It was a five hour, five or six hours we were on that hill. Oh, that's a big, big well, hike. Yeah, we did yeah. broken nose. Oh. So we went all the way up there yeah. and the photos are incredible. Like we went up, you could see the reef, like it was the most yeah. beautiful, clear and day. the boulder rolls are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it was so good there. They're pretty but, bad. Yeah. But we, by the time that we were getting down the bottom of the hill, the fear of the snakes and stuff, like it was really desensitized. Like he was on red alert for oh, a long okay. time of that trip. Yeah. But then that made me think about like, we've just been desensitized for our whole lives yeah. but he got in this environment and then he saw that snake and that was his fear and blah blah mm. blah but mm. then like by the time five hours later like the snakes are kind of out of his mind and he's starting to now adapt to like yeah. the environment and it made me think of like i didn't even know i had been adapted but that's what i was saying yeah. before like if you're in an area where everything's sanitized and everything's safe you know you have to draw your creativity from somewhere and it's probably like you know you're on the edge all the time here but you don't know it you yeah know, it becomes so up. normal yeah well how many times would we've camped like, i remember when we went up the cape with wade and cameron yeah, palmer yeah. and maddie and wade was just like fucking freaking about crocs yeah and rightfully so like where we yeah. were is full of crocodiles but we were just sleeping on the swags on the floor yeah just going, yeah. yeah it'll take somebody but that was not <laughs> well i broke down in a jet ski years ago in one of the rivers uh you know those stand-up jet skis and yep. uh and i'm going oh, i'll just float it out i was drunk at the time you know but he's just floating out that night that you know it took us ages to get out and um there was another guy there like beside the jet ski and it was a full moon it's about seven o'clock at night he goes what's that 
He looked at me, oh, damn, that's a croc. <laughs> and just sat there. And it was about like 80 metres away. And just, you know, we were going down with the current and it was just going down with us. And every now and then it would just go under. You go, oh, don't, no, don't, don't. <laughs> and because it was low, sort of low, you know, you hit your feet against a snag or, you know, a bit of, you know, an old branch or something and you'd shit yourself, you know. Then it'd come up over there. And it just, and they caught it like two years later. It was like five metres, you know. Oof. But you just don't think. Yeah. You know, you're just so used to something. And, uh, um, yeah, you just, like you said, you climbed up to that mountain and you, you know that they're there, but... It wasn't even on my mind for one second. Not at one bit, you no. know, until it is on your mind, until something like, oh, geez, yeah. And then you, you know? deal with it. But you know that there's not going to be any poisonous there. Yeah. Like, poisonous snakes don't climb trees. Poisonous snakes, you know, they're on the ground somewhere near where it's dusty or, or you may get some rainforest and mm. snakes are the poisonous, but you sort of know yeah. that, um, you know, you're okay. Well, the, the funniest one was um, we were in, I can't remember where we were. I feel like we were in Aracoon and um, we were in one of the rivers and it was like me, Maddie, Dad, and we were young. Yeah, we were yeah. probably like, I was maybe, no, I was probably like nine, Maddie would have been seven. Yeah. And then we had John and then his son, Scott, and we were cruising along back to the boat ramp, just in the tinny and then all of a sudden, Oh. the tinny gets airborne and we thought we hit a log yeah, no. and then you just see this croc just float up blub, 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 <laughs> like that just on a bit of an angle like on the piss and dad just going <laughs> and he's like the motor wouldn't start no, and we're, no, me and Matty no. are out the back of the boat like trying to see this croc we were fucking frothing like kids no. with no idea that this was a big dog and um, and then we're just floating down in the water and it's like this thing's I don't know stunned or something oh, and geez. dad just, oh, that was like probably the most scared I've ever seen. Because like, that thing had snapped that boat in half. Oh, you know? big time! Yeah. And then we were just thought it was like the funniest shit ever. Oh. But yeah, you just get like that whole desensitization thing. But you know, I was talking about this with Ron Hipwood. I'm fucking scared of the snow. Yeah, right. So I've got like not scared of the snow. I'm scared of being in those the implications big, of what, big mountains yeah. like that stuff. Like when I was in Alaska, I was le- le- legitimately scared when I was because um, we had the snowmobiles and I was filming by myself and I had my backpack and all my gear and it was hard to ride <laughs> was that the same time you nearly fell out of the helicopter that was the time I nearly fell oh, out of the no. helicopter but um, but yeah again that was another sketchy thing like I don't know just to me that environment yeah feels very harsh it feels very yeah. foreign and I imagine that's what Nick felt like in the rainforest yeah, yeah. but but Nick for example will walk through the streets of downtown LA mm. like we'll go streetwise Skidrow. yeah he don't give a fuck like streetwise yeah. yeah so it's just it's all that I suppose we're bushwise I suppose yeah like yeah. do you drop me anywhere in remote Cape York I'm good. Yeah. I'll be sweet. Yeah. You put me in that helicopter in Alaska and drop me up in one of their mountains, that's a wrap, son. Yeah, that's true. You know, so it is just that whole... Well, you're out of your environment. You're out of your comfort zone, you know. But it is, uh, you know, North Queensland has got a fair share of, um, you know, problems. Deadlies. But I mean, not problems, fair share of things. They're deadlies, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can understand why a lot of backpackers are just not, not you know. Um, that... Um, that whole thing about ice we were with hands ray going over a glacier once we're filming um it was a transalp trip it's going from austria to italy along the um yeah transalp track and uh we got to near solden actually a glacier and we're walking top top of the uh, top of this glacier and we're all roped together because we're jumping across gaps and just ice you know you look down and you go oh Death. can't see down there yeah and i'm 
walking like an old man, you know, I'm, I'm holding this rope. And they're going, go on, go on, no, no, no. And I'm, I'm going, like, what happens? You know, they say, oh, you'll be right, just jump across and if we, if you slip, we've all got you and everything. And that's not good enough for me. You know, that's <laughs> not good. And uh, a few of them, start, the cameraman was starting to laugh and, and things like that. And I said, all right, you, uh, you come to Australia, we'll go swim in some creeks. <laughs> See how, you know, because you know that they would react the same with crocodile warnings and things like that, you know. Mm. But when you don't know an area... Like you said, you know, just getting dropped out there, you don't know if there's a bear around the corner. I went riding with Bryn Atkinson once and he went down this track, I went down that track and I just stopped and went, and I'm sort of in Seattle somewhere, you yeah. know, and, and uh, you know, in the, in the bush out, out out there and everything like that, but you don't know if you're going to get, you don't know. Yeah. Well, I remember the first time I saw bears mm. was, um, I was in like that redwood forest and we're kind of walking along, we're on, we're on the trail, so not like we're out yeah. doing anything kind of we shouldn't have been doing. And then a family of black bears comes along as a mum and three cubs. And I had my camera and I only had like a 24 mil lens on and I'm like pretty excited. I was like, oh, I want to see that. But like, I was thinking about it. Like, I wouldn't have known what to do if that bear wanted to fuck with me. And, you know, the cub come running towards me yeah. and he'd feel threatened. Like, I'm, I'm sure those bears are quite used to people yeah. being that they're in, you know, Redwood Forest National Park or whatever. But like, if it was a crocodile... I'd know exactly how far away I can be. Yeah. I'd know exactly what to do, and what to do is not to get in the crocodile's mouth. That's yeah. the, you know, <laughs> the, like the, it's like you can't play dead with a salty. Like, no, 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 <laughs> like you're done. But That's like, funny. but you know, yeah. I could know in a situation of like, well, mm. I can be between me and you from the crocodile. Well, you I'll know, be, to run, and you, you when you run, you you. Uh, turn sharp left or sharp right because a crocodile can't it can run very fast in a straight, straight line, line but it can't but turn and run yeah little things like that but if you don't know anything about a bear you don't Exa- know. exactly and that yeah. made me think of that because i just had the crocodile confidence yeah. going towards it being like well i'm not scared of crocodiles and i've got big like you know we call it that massive scrub python oh that day. it's huge like it? we right got right across its head was over one side of the uh, like a footpath and its tail was on the other side and its head it. was in the drain pipe yeah it's like yeah, that's big. We will, so I guess to tell the story, we we come back from that uh, Cape trip yeah. that we just mentioned and we're driving across the road right up the road from Glenn's house and there was a scrub python across both lanes of the, yeah. um, both lanes of the road, but its head was in the thing and Glenn's like, you get, you start pulling on the tail like a rope and I'll wait until the head pops out and then we'll grab the head. Yeah. So that thing was so big. It would have been 16 foot easy. Oh, like easy, 15 yeah, foot. No, easy, yeah. And, yeah. um, and yeah, so we grabbed this thing, it wrapped both of us up together oh. and we got in the back of the ute together. Somebody, your dad maybe or somebody was dad driving? Was, yeah, dad yeah, dad yeah. drove us to the to the mountain bike trail because like, that's a that's a 40-year-old snake or that's, yeah, that's yeah. a 30-year-old snake. Well, you it's know an old mean? snake, yeah. 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 And, um, it was like that, you know. Oh, yeah. it was thick and yeah. fucking strong. But yeah, it pulled us both together. But that to to some people would just seem like the craziest thing and or they'd just mm. rather kill it to not yeah, deal yeah. with it. What was the saying? That they're only good snakes are dead snakes, yeah. which is pretty yeah anyway I, yeah. I don't like that saying it's a silly saying yeah, yeah like yeah cyclists pay why don't they pay red jays it's one of those things if you don't know anything about something you go to the quickest uh parroting phrase yeah and then all of a sudden you're full of knowledge but yeah but uh, anyway yeah snakes are cool like that they're, they're but yeah it was just it was just like that whole that whole thing of like well, i felt like because i've got that kind of experience with animals but then i was like no this is a bear you don't know shit about bears there's no yeah. bears in cans yeah. you don't know anything about this thing don't you pretend treat yeah. this treat this like it's a fucking bomb because yeah. you don't know what to do yeah yeah but i just thought it was funny that you know when you start to draw those 
parallels between like what you don't know and where your experience is like mm. how comfortable you can be with something and how mm. it might look similar but you don't know mm. anything about that you have to leave that alone i gotta say it remind me of a story um about snake shit it's the second worst smell in the world you know dead humans are bad you don't smell but uh you know uh, snake shit and um we we're up bush we we're going to have a look at at night time just drink a beer out four-wheel driving years ago your dad was in the front seat i was driving there was a couple of people at back you know in the back of the ute and we're just yahoo and having a good time and there was a snake we just pulled up went and grabbed it wrapped around my hand you know and it shat all over me you know and your dad's laughing it was the funniest thing and i'm going here have a smell i went like that <laughs> went over and he went and he breathed in and automatically just went vomited straight away all over the dash of the car and everything and rolled out of the car vomiting and I'd never seen anybody vomit that quick because the smell went in and the vomit came out you know? and dad he'd, he'd remember that yeah. then, um, yeah. he, he hates snakes because I've got my pet snake and he fucking hates the thing he'll never go near it yeah, but I think yeah. he's the coolest thing ever yeah, yeah. Oh, snakes! I had this cage, and I, I thought I'd, I thought it'd be a good idea to clean the cage out. And I must have had twenty six snakes in there. I put them all in a big sack, and and while I was cleaning the cage, I said to my mum, "I said, oh, I'm just going to put them in the because they're really docile. They they didn't do anything. They didn't bite. They didn't go anywhere fast. You know, they open the door to feed them. They'd come out. You know, they'd just be really calm. But all together, and I tipped them out in the backyard, big big grass yard. You know, and they just went, we're gone. You know, and should have said my mum. She was running everywhere and I'm running everywhere and they're going to the fence and the neighbours had like, you know, hoses and everything. It was funny, eh? Yeah. <laughs> snake, full snakes oh, on the plane. yeah, yeah. Snakes on the plane, yeah. I'm just going to do these, these cameras real quick. Yeah, can I pee? Yeah, yeah again. This one lazy yak best enjoyed while doing a podcast for Gypsy Tales. Oh, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> cool. Yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um... All right. Mm. Are you on? Mm. There you are. Um, yeah, you said before something cool that I guess we just kind of um, could go deeper into is that you said that the world's like is the best now that it's kind of ever been. Mm. And I think we don't really get told that mm. a lot these days, do we? And, uh, and mm. you know, like we spoke about it at breakfast with like the negativity bias, which is a natural kind of biological instinct that is wired into us for survival essentially mm. but there there isn't a better time to be alive well it's only going to get better you know i mean you can look at it you know there's just i mean it's information you know that whole information thing and uh you know put that in perspective when i was growing up we didn't have anything maybe some books and and, and uh remote you know Cairns is probably the furthest apart from you know Western Australia and you know Australia's a pretty big country so Cairns is way up here we're the end of the line and uh, you know before the internet you didn't really have anything you know it's just you were influenced by your friends your neighbours um, you know your teachers your family and uh, books mm. and the odd movie which was uh, what we were talking about before is like you were there was a certain type of movie you watched and you could pretty well uh, count the, all the uh, movie producers on one hand in those days. But now, with you know, with all this uh, social media and uh, you know, uh, GoPros and it, anybody can do mm. what Steven Spielberg or anybody else can do. You know, because you can. It's all about you know creativity and the information and everything like that. So back then, we didn't have any of that. 
So that's why, uh, you know, remote places, uh, you know, you breed, I, I believe in some cases it, it breeds creativity. Well, you look at New Zealand and Australia. Why mm. is New Zealand so much rather than Australia when it comes to core outdoor sports and stuff like that? And a lot of the way they think, you know, how do you see that? What do you think New Zealand may be so much more? Man, I haven't, I haven't been to NZ yet. Which oh, is, haven't you? Yeah. No, I'm going in September. Mm. And, um, but everyone has said, like, so we had Jeff Weatherall on the podcast. He's yeah. in New Zealand. Well, and actually Brad Smiley. And um, they're both Kiwi dudes. And yeah, like New Zealand just has it figured out with like that whole outdoor thing. And I yeah. think that they've got, because they've got a crazy thing. We've spoken about it on here before, but they have like public land is public land. Mm. Like you can just do what you want. If you're a member of the public, you can do what you want on public land. Yeah. And we, we definitely don't, we don't have do that, that here. No. Um, but I mean, I don't know, like, is it maybe that there's less kind of bureaucratic stuff going on? There's more, I guess, less people, which means less need for government in a way like not less need for government but i guess less interjection i mean fuck it could even be less people complaining yeah because i feel like legislation comes out of people (laughs) making noise in a negative sense yeah look australia i think is uh you know it's unfortunately but i think they're you know we've been so over governed a lot Mm. you know and uh you know I always go to that, you know, you better wear a tin hat or you may get hit in the head by, by a meteor, you know. It's sort of everything is approached that way. It's always the worst case scenario, you yeah. know, um, when there's a law brought out. There's, you know, it's, uh, you know, two or three people do, you know, not really, a, a small percentage of people yeah. do a bad thing and then everybody else has to pay for that, you know. Where in New Zealand, it's not like that, mm. you know. It's like, think for yourself, you're smart, you know. Don't do this, that's silly. You know, you even look at those... Those, um, you know, those uh, police shows on television. Yeah, yeah, like the New Zealand cop shows. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, hey, bro, don't do that. That's silly you doing that, you know. Just be careful, don't do it again. We're in Australia, it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, it's just the way your attitude is. And look, certainly remote areas and, uh, you know, um, breed differently. As I said, there's language and culture and stuff like that. I remember Miller Miller way up there on the tableland such a small group you know group of people and everything like that and they sort of grew and they sort of evolved a certain style of language and the way they acted and everything like that because they're away from everywhere else you know and uh, I think Cairns did that Mm. certainly Um, so yeah look uh, um, what was the question what was the (laughs) question it wasn't a question it's just a what were we talking about I was was just miles away thinking about Millimillimum how good is Miller Miller? What? How old were you when you, like, were you born? Up I was born there? in Cairns, yeah. But your, so your mum was up in Miller Miller, though, right? <laughs> She's born in Melanda, yeah, yeah. So how long did you spend living up there? Never. I, oh, you I, didn't yeah, live up there. Used to go up there all the time, every holiday. Yeah, yeah okay. the family farm and stuff like that. So the Tablelands was, yeah, it was great. And again, really remote area, and uh, you know, it's um, it's so different, you know, and still is, you know, all that whole area. It must have been amazing before they cleared the rainforest for the dairy farms you know mm. <coughs> pardon me um you know so so abrasive and so aggressive the countryside you know the you know, south johnson and north johnson and the craters and the volcanoes everywhere mm. that are full you know lake Barina, lake eachem and everything such a unique landscape in north queensland uh, a lot of granite and uh look they uh you know my ancestors got in there and cleared and cleared my grandfather and great-grandfather you know they they had dairy farms and timber cutters and all those type of things you know mm. and uh they got my grandfather actually um was given a block of land up there after the war and uh 
got in there and cleared it and came across a tribe of ab- Aboriginals had never seen anybody before. Really? Know? And they stayed on the farm, you know, because he went down this way, you know, like, go five kilometres that way and five kilometres that way, that's your block of land, sort of, you know, that's yeah, how it yeah. worked, you know. And he got down to one corner and there's some Aboriginals sitting there and, um, you know, and just stayed on the farm for years and years and years and years. You really? Know? And uh, my mum grew up with them, you know, and uh, it was a sad day. There was a, uh, sometime, I don't know what year, in the in the 40s maybe, that they came around and rounded them all up and took them away and put them all on Palm Island down there, um, Townsville. Fuck, I but, didn't know that. Yeah, and it's just, my my mum still to this day goes, I wonder whatever happened to Kitty and them because they... Because they would have been like really good friends. They were really good friends, yeah, you know, and they, they had uh, a lot of great skills and... And beautiful people, except for Jimmy Cassowary, he was a bad man. That's what <laughs> Mum always said. The whole tribe were fantastic, but they all said, "Keep away from Jimmy Cassowary; he's a bad man." <laughs> so whatever Jimmy Cassowary done, I don't know. But he was, he was, he had to keep away from him. But yeah, they, and they got rounded up and sent down there. And Mum to this day asks, you know, wonder whatever happened, you know, because they were rainforest people, mm. and they were put on a on an island in the ocean. I mean, that's horrible. You know? Who was I? The one thing, like leaving Cairns and living in the States and then sort of coming back to Australia, like I, I wish I knew more about the Aboriginal history in North Queensland than I do. Yeah. Because, I mean, man, fuck, when I played football, mm. played for brothers, there was one year I was the only white kid on the team. Yeah. And it, like they were just the the boys. Like it was such a fun time growing such up nice. with yeah, growing up with them oh. and all the all the families. And then we used to like we spent a lot of time up the Cape. Yeah, but um, I wish I knew more about the history and like who who were the people that were rounding them up and sending them to Palm Island. No, just government, you know. But it was just y- a, a law across, you know. Just yeah, and I why? Wish, I wish I knew why yeah. and what and you know like fuck that stuff is real, eh? And I think that a lot of times, like, mm. you know, we don't we don't get taught a lot about that kind of stuff. Like, especially growing up growing up in Cairns, like, we should have been taught about what, the language what, what happened. Yeah. yeah. Dude, so much slang that we used to oh, have. <laughs> I grew up with that slang. Yeah. It's like, How as, good was that? Oh, crap. And I still, all the time, like, I'll call mates like Buller and shit yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Like, and you, look, you got that dialogue. Yeah. And everybody was so, you know... Um, a lot of the families were just so loving and kind and that was just their nature, mm. you know, and we won't even get into what happened, you know. It was just horrible what happened, uh, mm. you know, over the you know, time that, um, you know, everybody came to Australia, you know. Um, and look at, at what you said about, you know, we weren't, like, really frustrated that we weren't taught the language at school. Man, Because that I was our wish, life. Yeah. We were here. You know, I grew up with Aboriginals because... Uh, in English Street, there was a you know a few tribes there living um, down the road, and I was the only blonde-haired little kid that used to run down there and stay there all day. And mm. Mum would get out on the veranda and sing out, you know, come home, and she could see where I was because mm. I was the only white kid there, you know. And yeah. down, oh, they're down in the swamps or down the rainforest or something like that, and I'd come home and and look, that was like that for years, and it was amazing, you know. Yeah. Um, and the things I learned and everything, but we weren't taught because that that was part of the culture. We were all one, you know, living in the bush and doing yeah. stuff and everything. And look, one thing that really shocked me, um, you know, I went to I went to Europe one time, and uh, and I was at my friend, my friend who's got a shop called Hot Point in Geneva, um, in Switzerland, got a mountain bike shop, and he'd been in Australia and everything, and we'd been hanging out. And uh, when I went over to Europe, I went and hung out there, and he picked me up from the airport, and we had a barbecue that night, 
and there was people everywhere and uh you know that we were playing bocce and we're uh riding mountain bikes around the house and it was it was a fun night and uh until i sort of accidentally asked because i never really knew what happened in the war you know and uh about switzerland and the nazis and things yeah, like that yeah. so you know I wasn't really taught about that that much, or maybe I just didn't listen at school. But I said, what was what was the big deal with the Nazis and then Switzerland wasn't part of the war? You know, how come the Nazis... And he got his back up, you know, and that I had insulted him. I didn't mm. realise, you know, that... But you were coming from a genuine place. I just wanted to know, yeah. you know, but he didn't answer the question. He said, don't you talk to me. He said, do you know the Australians have the worst genocide record in the world? Mm. And I'm like, bullshit, when, you know, because I knew about Tasmania. He said, Tasmania. The Australians wiped out a whole culture. Yeah. It's the worst known genocide in the world. Well, we weren't taught that no. at school. We, we knew that that happened and we knew you know, the, the, the you know, atrocities that happened and everything like that, but we didn't, we, we didn't know it was the worst genocide in the world because a whole race of people mm. were wiped out in a short period of time by, you'd have to say Australians, but it was basically English. Mm. And um, those type of things we, we weren't taught. So you can understand the frustrations, you know, mm. um, now that we have in our society, you know, that, um, you know. That I wish that, like, because it's something that's super close to my heart, like obviously growing up here, like, and yet yeah, being the only white kid on my football team. Yeah, like, that was yeah. the, That was three days a week of my life yeah. was spent, like, I did, I, like, spoke aboriginal to play football yeah like, you know what i mean and yeah. all the boys had like their little nicknames and all that yeah. and they were this funny little motherfuckers oh. too like and man and like they all i remember too like <laughs> i actually never forget um i was at my grade 12 formal after party and it was at the skate rink down next to brothers um football club yeah. on Bean street yeah so then i was there and i walked in the toilet and it, it was bomb like i was by myself and there was a aboriginal dude in there yeah and he just looked at me and it was one of the guys that just wanted to wanted to flog up a white kid and i was like yeah. fuck i knew that look I, it's happened to me before yeah and i knew that what was about to go down so i went into the but like the bathroom stall yeah not the piss trough yeah so then i went in there and then i i had a piss and i walked out and just hoped that it was gonna be all good right so anyway it wasn't all good old mate bails me up in the pushes me back into the bathroom stall yeah and I'm going, all right, fuck, I'm in for a bit of a bit of a touch up here. Yeah. And um and then in walks one of my mates, who's an Aboriginal kid, mm. played in my football team. Yeah. Kicked the shit out of this dude. Yeah, right. For me, like for yeah, me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I like th there was a lot of that that stuff then. Mm. So I mean for me, I, it's like it's a complicated thing because at the same time, like, there's that part of me that I know that there's no point at this point it's all done like the history mm. has been done mm. and i think that i think we just need to we need to go back like really go back and think about the people at the time yeah if we can't judge people based on our standards now mm. because they didn't exist like we've mm. come a long way when you look at like yeah in in essentially like if you look at like the way that muslim countries some muslim countries exist now mm. where women can't drive they're forced to wear these full body mm. burqas they've got mm. zero rights like we were there yeah of course like we, were. we as long ago. as white european yeah. people we were there of mm. like yeah only a but hundreds of years yeah, ago yeah so it's like to see where we're at now mm. is 
pretty remarkable. Like we have really gone like, ooh, fuck, dicey. Well, look, that pe- was dicey back then. Look, there's people still alive now mm. that have experienced some things. Um, you know, there's a lady that is in the retirement village with mum and she's 100 this year. And she was telling me how, um, you know, uh, her father was uh, was in an area that he shouldn't have been where the Aboriginals in Bowen were... Yep. Um, were you know it was their area and the railroad was coming through and her father shouldn't have gone out by himself that day because he, there should have always been two or three people working on the on the gang mm. and he was killed and eaten you know and she's still alive today you know? killed and eaten by who by the local aboriginals you know and uh you know she said uh, and, and matter of fact way she said you know it was amazing that they just went for the kidneys and the the liver and the fat around there because that actually kept them yeah. Strong and you know maybe protein. I don't know, but she was telling it, telling the story. Um, but she's still alive today, you know. And then you fast forward now. Um, look, there's, you know, um, that was raw countryside, then, yeah. you know, and and that's not that. It was a sign of the times. Yeah, so. and and look, the beautiful thing is, you know, if if you if you come from the right place or you, you try to do your best and and to to make sure everybody's living right you know mm. it doesn't matter what race or anything like that you know we go to the Wangetti Trail now I mean that came from a the idea of the Wangetti Trail came from uh, my view of growing up in the area how rad the Aboriginal culture yeah. was of the area you well, know we got like the Minjin like there's yeah, always just, been these Aboriginal undertones yeah, that have influenced exactly us for everything you know and then just my frustrations growing up you know not being able to speak Aboriginals, I really was frustrated by that. Mm. There was no books I could go and buy. I certainly went looking, you know, and how could I learn to speak Aboriginal because it was just part, that's part of your life. You know, where you're born and where you are, there was this whole thing where you just went to school and did this and that a certain style, but there was, you know, like learning to play the didgeridoo. Chris Kovarik taught me of all people, you know, and uh, that was rad learning that, you know, and... uh, there's a you know a lot of lot of culture things that we should just be you know it should just be a part of our syllabus and look you you look at southern california you know the whole mexican influence with Mm. with with everything food and and culture and stuff like that well we need to have more of that here yeah and then in new zealand the maori culture and everything like that but it's been sort of i don't know it's been pushed to the side here in Mm. australia too much yeah too much you know so one of my main threads, main main thinking was, you know, with the Wayne Gatti Trail is certainly it's going to be a, one of the greatest trails in Australia because of the, you know, the, the terrain, terrain is yeah. spectacular. You know, the waterfalls, the beaches and the lookouts and the rainforest and everything. But, you know, um, to tell the story, the Aboriginal story of yeah. what, how they traded down there at Wayne Gatti and uh, what they saw, I, I, want, I want everybody to see what they saw, you know, in the mountains and everything like that and what they experienced and... Uh, Hopefully, you know, there's, um, you know, getting a lot of people like um, traditional owners on board mm. in the build and in, in the... Because uh, there is a lot of uh, Aboriginal support for the project. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Because were they some of like the instigators of it in a way? Oh, look, uh, we all talked over the years saying this is an idea mm. you know, that, that that I've got, you know, and they were very supportive, you know. And... Yep. Uh, and uh, like like anybody here in North Queensland, you're proud of your your home. You yeah, know, well, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You're par- proud of yeah. your heritage, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, you know uh, we are here, you know. And uh, some way that we can roll that out physically, mm. you know, and and and, and get people, uh, 
you know, get that emotional attachment, not just from riding, but you know, embracing the culture here too. I think it's significant. We we don't have enough of it in Australia. You know, the Aboriginal culture. We've got a weird thing in general in Australia with, um, especially like I noticed with my time in the US with like even the national anthem. Mm. And I remember, um, well, perfect example. I fucking went to the Broncos game last week, and it was like the not no national anthem. Yeah. What? You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I, I really struggle with some isn't, isn't that a thing called nationalism or something like that where they're trying to push too much? Well, I think that I think that America probably has it too far. Yeah, of course. And But I think we have not enough of it. Mm. And I think that, I mean, it's probably a sign of just the general political landscape to where we are so multicultural and there's a lot of refugees and now they're not wanting to sing Christmas carols in schools because of offending other religions and things like that. Mm, and I think mm. that Australia is almost getting into this really weird leftist place where mm. um, you don't want to risk offending anybody. And even even to sit and say anything about, you know, Aboriginal culture, people are so scared that if you say, oh, a black kid, that mm. they're going to go, well, you can't say that. Mm. You know what I mean? So you kind of get in this weird place where like, you it's almost like you're not judged on your intentions or the context of a conversation anymore it's just Mm. like we've just painted stuff to be so taboo Mm. that you're not allowed to say anything so it's like it's almost like where everything's fading away and Mm. it's like we can't appreciate aboriginal culture because then there's people on this side that say like and then if you want to celebrate white culture then there's people on that side Mm. so it just seems like there's no happy medium for anybody and it's like and I guess what I was trying to say before is we're all here now yeah and how we got here is how we got here and there's things that and I said it with um, Adrian on the podcast like if if you walk and stub your toe Mm. I can say sorry but it's not gonna make your toe feel any better me acknowledging that you're in pain and going like oh fuck that sucks like (laughs) that's what would help yeah but if I just went sorry mate yeah that's you know what i mean like there's no kind of i because i actually didn't i didn't do that to you yeah but if i'm like oh man are you all right can i get you a band like can i do something for you but i think that yeah we need to i think oh look i've heard that argument yeah that that that, not argument but i've heard that um it's like uh again i'll just say about mum like she you know when i first went to japan she said oh I don't like that idea you know the Japanese were really bad during the war and she saw the atrocities, what they did to, you know, her family and stuff like that. So she still... Hangs on to that. Yeah, but after I went there and said, look, they're really good and, yeah. you know, it's a lot of fun and she, she gradually got over it, but she was alive. Mm. She still is alive. And she was there in the Second World War. Yeah. And I've heard those people say that, you know, that, you know, um, what happened, the atrocities and everything mm. like that were like 200 years ago. So why is anybody upset now? But look, what it is... You can still... I think, yeah, you can still be upset because you're right, Mm. it's still super relevant. Well, look... And people are still bearing consequences directly of of those actions. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. That's that's real. You know, it's it's, it's not just like, oh, that happened ages ago, so nobody should be pissed about it. Mm. You know, it's trickled trickled down, you know, over the years and there's been a a way of that culture. But look... (laughs) A lot of Aboriginals will will tell you, you know, just the way they are. They're lovely, beautiful people. Mm. You know, the 
you know, um, I remember growing up, they they were shy, giggled, you know, they weren't exposed to everything that we are. You yeah, know, it's just there's raw, so much more innocence. But so much knowledge, mm. you know, in the environment and everything like that. And it's, uh, um, look, uh, yeah, look, it's a hard road forward. Yeah. You know, it is a really hard road forward. But I think the thing, I, I think, like, I guess what I'm really trying to say is if you go if you keep going backwards right Mm. which is what i think you have to do you have to go Mm. back to where it was everybody was colonizing everywhere all over the world and and that's the problem that's where it all started and the thing is is that no one in my mind the people that lost out were the indigenous species Mm. all over the world Mm. and they were all in the same boat yeah but the spanish the french Mm. the english the dutch all of these people at the time for survival needed to then branch out and it was a land it was a global land race Mm. and i think that that's unavoidable Mm. that couldn't you know and if if we could have gone back in time or whatever then maybe Mm. you would but you know you had like attila the hun like that just happened like people just went and there was conquest and it was in this new age and and it was something that you know the indigenous species uh, the indigenous not species but the indigenous population of these countries like the aboriginals in australia and then you've got you know the people in the amazon like they weren't interested in that there was Mm. something that evolved in them to where it was like this is our spot this is what we this Mm. is with this works for us and i think that you know you look at um I think there was a problem that stemmed from education then you get the english that come over and then you're like mm. look at these savages they don't even yeah. have the wheel or tools so there was but it was just such a lack of knowledge yeah that's a lack of knowledge yeah and but yeah. that was the time mm. and it's like it got everyone to this point and it and it's i don't know if it's any and i wonder like this isn't a fully flushed out concept in my head but it's like is it okay for not okay for us to say but it's like if it wasn't the english would it have been the japanese oh yeah definitely. would it have been the german would definitely it have been? definitely definitely yeah. and so it's like and i think that now there has to be a way forward from all of this because mm. i feel like but the argument would still be the same if it was the japanese or German. yeah exactly yeah. the argument yeah. would still be the yeah. same and it's their argument and it's a right argument yes you know that 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 it's been bad for them yes you know and we've just got to acknowledge that it's been bad for them. Yeah, I agree. And whatever we can do to look, there, there's no easy answer mm. because the cultures are so different. You know that they're our culture and their natural culture. You know, but there has to be some meshing and there has to be some blending. And, and there some, has to be give on the side of the the people who inflicted the yeah. the trauma. Yeah, and I think that it is a fact of embracing the culture and embracing mm. the good that come mm. of the culture and i think that i mean we we've all seen the i don't want to be english no, no I, I don't want to be, be australian British. i want to be australian yeah. but what is australian you know so you know um you know we we grew up here in north mm. queensland with the cane farms you know the greek and the italians and the you know um serbians and the russians and you know from all over the world you mm. know um you know, there's all these different um, influences and, you know, but uh, we're all blends, like you said, we're just multicultural, you yeah. know, and it works and works well, you know. Um, but I think the respect and, uh, you know, just just learning. I mean, the thirst of knowledge, you, I mean, everybody should have this mm. thirst for knowledge, you know, um, for what happened here before us, you know. Yeah. I think that, you know, I'd be really proud if we spoke a mixture mm. 
of, of our language and their language. I mean, that would be perfect. And, and look, time does, look, I'll just touch on that a little bit. You know, <laughs> there was a, there was a, a period, um, and it probably happened all over Australia there, there was a period in time where you could tell where somebody was from by the way they talked. And yeah. that was in Australia, especially in North Queensland. I could tell if somebody was from Edmonton, from Gordon Vale, from Miller Miller, and from Athenon, for anybody that doesn't know that, they're only about 50k apart, you know. But I could tell that they are from that area because the way their mannerisms were, the way they could, they, 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 not so much language, but the way that they had a twang in their voice or mm. the way they presented themselves when they talked, the way they dressed and all those type of things, you know, somebody from Mossman and, yeah. and, and Coranda and stuff like that. Um, and over time, that, that, that evolution, that, that start, started to grow really well, you know, but then, you know, Television came about, and then you know, media, and mm. you know um, the American uh, influence, influence and stuff like that, and that sort of gradually went away. Starts to like assimilate. Everything yeah, starts yeah. to get into its own. But thing. when you look at it, you know, you stand in the, you know, on the border town of in somewhere in Italy, and across the road is France. How did they get to that? Yeah, it was a thousand years of just, you know, having accents. So, g'day, mate. Yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, you and I certainly do talk differently, but we don't talk like that now. Mm. But North Queensland had a way of talking like that, and we did it, you know, you're everything and running together, and you know, Ooh. we we can talk like that, but we don't. Mm. You know, is that that? And you imagine if we didn't have any of that influence, yeah, you know, from media, in a hundred years' time, we'd be like we'd have our own language, language you know. Yeah. So that's what I, you know, just on that, you know, we we have this, you know this uh, ancient culture around us that we don't embrace well that's what yeah I was, that's what i was gonna say is like with everything that's happened we're the ones that lose out too of course like look at know, new zealand when the you know parliament opens and uh the they, haka yeah, you know? well even you know they, they rub noses and and they ha- they embrace the culture what do yep. we do for the, you know, exactly. the whole aboriginal thing yeah where is that in our, our we know it's here but we haven't had that in front of us to learn yep and I, and I, yeah, and I didn't realize that. And I mean, I, I think that we were lucky with the way, like, I remember we'd go spend like weeks in Cape York. Yeah. And it was just me and Maddie. Like, we didn't have any white kids that come yeah. up with us. Mm. It was, we went up with dad. We stayed on the, at the police stations. Yeah. And if we wanted to play with kids, we played with all the Aboriginal kids. Mm. And man, oh, we got photos of me and Maddie riding like 350 kilo pigs <laughs> with like four four of us on there yeah. me and maddie and then two of the two of the aboriginal kids that were next door yeah. and at the i think it was the um Kaunyama station they had the, the the house but the police barracks was here and then they had the fence line and then they had uh the next old queenslander style yeah, house yeah. and they had a fucking mango tree bang dead set in the middle of the two trees we used to be able to climb out of our bedroom window of the oh, police station and climb the mango tree yeah. into next door neighbors yeah. and like we used to go there for dinner when we wanted to like we'd just go fishing with yeah. it like we so i'm i feel lucky that we got to experience that culture yeah. because there is a lot of negativity that surrounds the like there is issues in the aboriginal community for sure yeah. but there are issues that we created yeah like they, they we shouldn't have forced all these different tribes that, with yeah. all, different languages like People don't get that tribes, like just tribe groups of families have completely different languages. And there was like, um, you know, even with the boulders story yeah, of like a, yeah. marrying a different 
yeah. woman from another tribe then they they tried to kill yeah, yeah. the both of them that was a rad story yeah, you know yeah. like I'll, you should tell that story <laughs> but um you know so i feel lucky that we were exposed to a bit of that culture but we never really learned like specifically learned the language we didn't yeah. have aboriginal studies at school and it's like for me to make this stuff better like my big thing is yeah like i i can't i physically can't do anything about the past mm. i cannot go and change mm. that mm. and i but i understand that the wounds are still there there's still families and mm. kids and tribes that were families that were forced to live together in communities that they shouldn't have been mm. that wasn't part of their culture and, mm. and we did force that but now it's like that's been done but now we're like they were on the losing end now we're on the losing end yeah because we're we're missing yeah. out on culture that our souls are empty yeah you know our souls are empty we don't have anything like probably the easiest way to explain it is like years ago the uh the australian government decided to have a national anthem mm. because we had god save the queen mm. they didn't let anybody know um that you know there, i don't think there was a referendum no. They just said, this is it. This is this, the anthem. And it's shit. But it's like, you yeah, know, but everybody stands up to, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but it didn't, it hasn't come from anywhere. Yeah. So that in a nutshell is it. It has to come from where, you know, everything has to come from a place, you know, mm. it has to come from your soul or whatever it is. Yeah, you know? somewhere to, real. Yeah. Real, not made up, yeah. you know. And I think the Australian, you know, a lot of, a lot of that stuff that happened in Australia was really what we were taught at school about, you know, some whoever in the UK or yeah. something it's wrong yeah. it's about where we are here now yeah. you know let it grow let it you know plant the seed let it grow and I think look I think it's a good thing some I mean I think what's happening now is a good thing there's a lot more understanding yeah with um there the is more respect as yeah. well with uh, traditional owners and uh you know just that whole yeah people just need to learn more and it comes down to you know the only good snake's a dead snake you know yeah exactly you know a lot of people don't understand something they'll just you know paraphrase parrot or whatever you know and yeah. just cackle about something and think that they sound good you know you just have to have that knowledge and understand and i think uh, there's so much on you know to offer don't you oh man and and i think we're lucky in the way that we've seen it yeah but yeah i mean like what you said learn and you know we should have aboriginal studies in in schools we should yeah. but the problem is the pushback you get from ignorant people you know, like, and the same, you know, the big, a big thing that I'm like, actually, I've never spoke about on the podcast, but I'm like really passionate about change the fucking flag to the Aboriginal flag. Mm, mm. That's fully us. Like when I look mm. at the Aboriginal flag, mm. I see Australia. Mm. Like, but it's like what you said, like where, yeah, we've come from England or whatever. Like I'm a super oh, well, white look, dude. Look, like definitely. I have no Aboriginal heritage, yeah, but yeah. I'm an Australian. Yeah. I was born here. Yeah. I was born in the same place where everyone well look it should be it should have nothing to do with the union jack even though you know you, you, you know my grandfather and great-grandfather and uh, you know um, father and stuff like fought and you know, they stood up beside the flag and everything i, but I that's do that get whole that i do get but that, that whole thing you know that hand on the heart type thing that mm. creates something else but um you know the australian i mean the aboriginal flag was um designed out of something too i reckon there should be uh you some know, kind of hybrid that, yeah definitely you know yep. something that um you know that uh, represents us all but yeah that i mean that should have been done years ago yeah you know? and uh but i think we're still clinging on that national anthem type thing you know it's a joke mm. you know we're you know i think everybody's gradually evolving and, and changing you know um it'll happen one day but i think we're in a good place yeah i think we're going toward well i think we're going towards something good and uh you know just that our culture you know, people love it 
you know, as you know, globally, yeah, you know, they they respect what we've got here, you yeah, know, what what they see here with uh, traditional owners and everything like that. So uh, it just needs to be expanded, more opportunities, and yeah. you know, the crazy thing too, when it, I guess the whole race debate, it's so it feels like that's such a big part of our culture now is like mm. this whole reconciliation of of racial differences. Mm. But I don't, I wonder how much thought people give to like. I don't know the number and there's maybe someone out there that does know the number, but in how many years there's going to be no white people Mm. like white people won't exist in a, in a way like, but what culture will exist in a pure form of like, like if you've got a purebred uh, German (laughs) shepherd and you know what I mean? Like you've got that bloodline, but there's nothing like we can breed you know, yeah. with people that it's gonna are different, t- it's gonna different take, to us. Yeah, it's going to take a while, but I think AI may, AI may beat us at that one. I was going to say, there's probably going to be some weird shit that beats us to that. Yeah, but like, right, if yeah. you, like my big thing when I look at problems yeah. is like, okay, let's fully extrapolate this out mm. to like either the past. And that's what I was saying about like, you have to think about the people and the time and what was going to happen. And then yeah. when you think about that, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I, I get it. And now it's like, let's go to the future. And even though some shit might beat us to that future where mm. it might be thousands of years until there's not one white person left. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, you're an idiot if you dig your heels in and go like, nah, we need to save the white race. Yeah, like yeah. that's a stupid thing. Like, cause it, it doesn't is. mean anything. Yeah, like yeah. it does, it's just a human. You have yeah. a white a white baby, Asian baby, they're still a baby. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it seems weird to place significance on something like that, but it's like extrapolate that out to the very end. And we eventually get to a point where there is no race. It would be one race because we would eventually, there's so much different people breeding with different people. So it's like, if you can fully extrapolate that and mm. then use that knowledge in right now, and go like, well, that's the end point. So right now we know how that plays out. So, okay, fuck that argument's dumb. We're, yeah. done, we're done with this yeah, argument. We yeah. know where it's going to go. Let's not argue until we get to that point. Yeah. You know uh, what I mean? It's, uh, you imagine bringing your great grandfather forward to this day, you know, from a life on a farm somewhere like that, you know, somewhere in Ireland or whatever and coming forward and seeing what's happening here and thinking, shit, I ain't going to breed. I ain't going to have kids. Yeah. Because I am not going to let anybody live in this, you know, like yeah. the way they're living. In this slop. Know? Yeah, exactly, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but humans are great things, they evolve. Yeah. Here we are now. You're happy. I'm happy. The world's okay, isn't it? Mm. You know, so, you know, that view from back there going, this is hideous. The future is really bad. No, it's not that bad. You evolve. Isn't you know, it? So, so we as a, as a breed, just because, you know, you know we, we, you know, you have borders and boundaries and, you know, languages and people, you know, but the way the world's going, you know, certainly there'll be societies and regions and stuff like that, but we'll be mm. a breed of person. Yeah. Because we're only young. Yeah. You know, this is only early in our, you know, as you said, it'll just mingle and cross and everything. It'll be what happens if you get all the colors, you know, all the palettes, paint colors, and mm. you mix them all up together and it sort of goes gray. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's one color. Yeah. You know, and what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with no, that. And that's the thing where I wish people could use that thing to like extrapolate it out and but then bring it back and yeah. be like well that's retarded this is all going to go away like we're fighting yeah. over a thing like like i always think about again it's like this is the ultimate version of it but it's like the sun will die yeah so we've either got to figure out a way to get away from this sun that dies yeah or we just die yeah and it's like people could 
go like, oh, it's going to be so long way. Blah, blah, blah. But like, no, okay, well, that's going to happen. We know every mm. single star dies. Mm. Might be in a billion years. Yeah. And then fuck knows what goes on between now and a billion years. But it's like, that's the end game. So it's like, there's a lesson in that for mm. us somewhere. And it's like, take the lesson from that, that like this isn't here forever. Mm. And it's like, you have to make certain, you know, make the best out of what you do have now because it will go away. We're going that way. I think we're going that way. Even in the short term, you know, as we were saying before, the, the world is the world. It doesn't matter what we do. Mm. We wipe ourselves out. The world is the world. Yeah. It's just going to keep on rolling and spinning around until that sun dies in X amount of billion years. But in the short term, mm. you, know, um, you know, society, you know, we've got to, you know, look, I think it's moving forward really well. Yeah. You know, I think there's going to be some hiccups here and there. We've just got to watch out on uh, how we're manipulated. Yeah. If we are, you know. Um, and how we grow forward as a, as a species, you know, because I think it's exciting, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities, you know, like if you had an accident and lost your arm, you know, you, you know, 50, 80 years ago, well, you know, 100 years ago, you'd have Dead. a timber stump. Yeah. Well, yeah, you could die yeah. from infection and stuff like that. But, you know, if you, if you, you know, went past that and you'd end up with a, you know, like a leg that have a peg leg, you'd have yeah. a, you know, a timber stump. Well, now prosthetics and it's all, that, that's all going really well. But then there's bionics. Yeah. And then it'll get to a stage where, um, how come that leg is better than mine? How come yeah. that one you can buy off the shelf is four times stronger, three times lighter? I might get rid of my legs. Yeah. Exactly. I'm going to go to the leg shop. Yeah, well, you think about it this way, as uh, you know, your heart, your lungs, you know, there, there's things that replace They're things fine in your body. It, yeah. yeah. And if they get better and better and better and better, you'll get to a stage where you go, hmm, I wouldn't mind being four kilos. Yeah. And being able to fly. Yeah, you basically have a bolt-on body because yeah. we're really what we are now. We're still apes. Yeah, you know this. This is to pick fruit, and the legs are to run away from the tiger. Yeah, you know, and that's about it. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people probably wouldn't agree with that, but really, that's where it's going in a way that oh, we are evolving. Yeah. You know, but we're not saying it's going to be aluminium or you know Teflon or bloody you know. It's going to be. It's going to look identical to how we are. Yeah. It's going to react better and lighter and stronger, you know. Yeah. And well, that's one way you could go. They probably could go other ways too, you know. But it just seems like that's the way it has to go. Mm. Like because you, we're just doing the next thing. It's like this constant, mm. like we're just a butterfly. They're upgrades, just but upgrades, it's just it's constantly but upgrades. But it's everything. <laughs> like that camera that's filming right there. Yeah. Five years ago, that thing was fucking a hundred thousand yeah, dollars, yeah. and now it's like seven thousand yeah. dollars. And it's like when you used to have to record audio onto a tape, and it's like whatever you've got in front of you, yeah, you're gonna try and make it better. That's just that's a thing, and it's like is that's humanity's gift and curse in a way. Yeah, it is, of course. And don't you don't you think it's funny that everything mechanical doesn't? it goes digital or not so much digital goes to no moving parts it's like you know like you mm. said about tape and records and solid like state that. hard drives yeah everything and now it's not mm. and uh, you know your phone you know used to be at home it was like you know this big yeah. dial it was mechanical but yeah. now it's not a car you know pistons going now it's not you yeah. know, it's battery you know all these things are going you know, like drones or you know mini helicopters uh, or engines now it's not it's a battery yeah and like little electric engine one moving part Everything is simplified. Now we, we're going into a, an, a, an era where this is all these this information is available to us. So, um, well, you got to think. There's nothing even wrong with any simple, of that, is there? 
No, well, it's like as simple as a watch. Mm. Like the moving pieces that were in a Swiss watch, yeah. like the best, finest watch you could make was like thousands of these tiny, yeah, little, tiny moving pieces going. But now it's just like a fucking computer chip with an LED screen. Well, that was in the 70s. It's better. Quartz, quartz watch. There was no moving parts. That was in the 70s, you know. And then, you know, then you get into the other side of things is everything external will probably be internal. Mm. You know, the, you, you've got things that you hold in your hand, you know, which is a phone. And, you know, then you go, well, let's put it under the skin and then go internal. It's a bio sort of um, mm. organic style thing. Your camera lens goes in your eye. You know, all these things can actually move forward, be it good or bad. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to tell. But it's, it's funny the people that get super negative, like they take that negative look on the world because of, um, the, well, there is a lot of negativity just in, mm. in general. But like there's a guy that he's only a young kid. Well, he's like 23, 24. Mm. And he's created this thing that like goes through the ocean and just is like fucking smashing all of the plastic in the ocean. Yeah. Okay. And he reckons if he can keep getting funding, then in five years, there'll be no more plastic in the ocean. With all the, yeah, okay. Because, but that's because of technology. Yeah. So it's like all of this stuff that like in Dubai, they make it rain once a week. You know, <coughs> so the, there's good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the technology, it's like, you know, we're like, you get these people that are like, global warming, well, this, ah, fucking pollution. Well, it's like, well, hold on. We're all going to have these battery cars pretty soon. Yeah. So it's like, then that problem's going to go away. And then we're going to figure out how to do this. <laughs> that reminds and me then, of something, yeah. Go on. And then yeah. that's going to go away. And then now we've got this thing that eats all the plastic in the ocean. So that yeah. problem's going to go away. Yeah. So it's like, it's so secular in terms of like negative to positive, negative to positive, negative. Yeah. It's just this constant cycle but the thing that's driving that is human ingenuity and human mm. invention like a lot of people won't like this but you know you know you know what i said about external go internally imagine you had a gps you had all that in you know inside you um then you go well you know then you can be tracked mm. and people will know where you are you know and the government will you know and that's true too that that could go all shit fucks, yeah, you know, real can go wrong. really bad. Well, China's doing heaps of weird shit like that yeah. already. So, look, there's good and the bad, you know, but if, if everything worked well, there'd be laws and things that could counteract that. But, you know, you'd have to be really, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. You'd have to be really, really careful. But again, like that magazine front cover I was telling you about, you know, about yeah. the, you know, the journalist saying, you know, after reading this, after um, riding this bike, where do bikes go from here? In 1888, um, I think it was a French government or English or something like that. Got, um, or there was a consortium, yeah, really smart scientists. They wanted to see what what 1988 would be like, a hundred mm. years time. I think I told you this story. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. Go about this. Is yeah, awesome story. And, and, and look, I don't know where it, uh, you know, I don't know where it came from. I heard it once, a long time ago, and it was actually 1988. Um, so in 1888. Uh, these the smartest minds got together and said, "What forecast a hundred years ahead?" You know, um, and they they went and looked at how the world was, where it was going, this and that, and they came back with a solution. Of, oh, she's fucked. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know why is that? Well, basically, it came down to um, the amount of the population in the world. The population, there's so many people. The amount of food that they had to have, the amount of transport and everything that the whole world would be covered in six. Oh no. Two foot of horseshit. Yeah, <laughs> right around the whole world will be covered in two foot foot of horseshit. That was the pr- that was six hundred mil of horseshit. Yeah, because the, yeah, because the, the amount of population. Mines. Yeah, the greatest mines because you needed yep cars, 
you know, oh, sorry, you needed horses, not cars. They didn't know about cars really. They needed horses to transport everything. The population grew. You need to get this here and get that there and everything. You need so many horses, this and that, and they shit everywhere. Yeah. Like that. And you go, well, yeah, but think they didn't know about the First World War, the Second World War, you know, automation, stuff like that. And, and here we are, you know, everything's okay. Well, you know, it's the same thing, you know, if you said to Captain Cook, you know, how long do you think, if you had the opportunity to talk to Captain Cook and say, well, how long does it, do you think it takes to go from, yeah. you know, London, uh, Plymouth to, to Sydney? You know, you go, well, I've been there once. It took about six months. You go, well, what, what if I tell you um, commercially I could actually get there in about, you know, 18 hours, 15 hours, you know, actually, you could yeah. actually do it in three. And it's not that much. No. You don't you have go, to be well, the queen. How do you think you could do it? And you'd go, oh, dude, you'd need sails so big. The wind You'd would have, have to, have to be wind. blowing. Yeah, <laughs> you need this and that. But if it was that big, the heavy, the ship would be so heavy. You know, you only you got what you've got in front of you at yeah. the time. You know, so then somebody comes to us now and say, "How long does it take to get to Mars?" You know, say to Elon Musk, he goes, "Well, mm. it's going to take this long." You know, what say I told you it took maybe f- four, maybe three seconds. Yeah, what? What? How could you do that? Well, what we do is we just download your information and put it in an avatar the other end yeah same you same everything but you just get dropped the other end how can they work well it's easy it's yeah so yeah. you don't know what's ahead of you yeah you know um you could say you know um global warming this and that you know that just the de- deforestation you know you can say well there that thing there that's a seed we developed a you know acorn seed you drop it in the ground and in four months it's full height yeah you know and so not that not to go just you don't go destroying everything, but anything is possible in the yeah. future. Anything is possible. So that's where we are in this, you know, with technology and everything at the moment. You know, that's and why I have a, you know, the, that's why you're still positive because anything can happen. I've seen a lot of shit. You know, uh, that, yeah, dude, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I think too that um, the the whole that's why I get a lot of frustration because. When you see an issue like the gun thing in America, yeah, like it's that's a problem, yeah. And then there's people that still that's a problem to them, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's still people there that will say like it's too big of an issue, and I'm like, righto, bro. Was space travel too big of an issue? Yeah, like we've been to fucking space. Yeah, like we've done shit. Like we've cured diseases that threaten the population of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, There's so yeah. many things that it's crazy. Isn't are it? like too big. What is too big of an issue? Like with the cures that we've got for diseases, education, all these things that were just like the you know two feet of horse shit. Yeah, that was an issue. <laughs> that was an issue. But yeah. then all of a sudden, like we've got these solutions, and yeah. I just really get frustrated when people come to me with issues of, and they say that there's some things can't be solved. And I was like, tell me one thing that can't, like, hasn't mm. been solved that people have genuinely committed to trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to even get into that gun debate thing. That's just silly. No, no we, we don't have like to. Like, sitting, no, but sitting over here in Australia, you know, um, you know how simple it is. Mm. It's just simple, you know? You know, it's just certainly, you the, know, I, the, the old story about, you know, you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns and all these type of things. There's so, so many, but overall, mm a greater percentage and everything's like oh well, you know i don't miss guns i used to love them but <laughs> don't need them. some days i wish i'd you know you go and lucky purely, there's not a gun in the house you know because you can go yeah. a bit silly you know but you go no no that's purely the thing and i just wish i'm like america do what you want but just say 
we are just fucking nuts yeah. for guns. And then everyone's just feel like, well, fuck, what's the argument now? But that's really what it is. Like, there's so many people that just fucking love it. Hey, and it, it, mate, it comes back to the don't pat the tiger. Mm. No, no, go ahead, pat the tiger. Yeah, it will clean you up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like uh, the cotton wool people, you know, over the you know, last, oh, whatever, 50, 80 years, you know, you put a railing on a cliff. Why? <laughs> you know, a silly person's going to fall over. Yeah. You know? um, then that silly person doesn't get to make more silly people. Yeah. And everyone you know? should be better off. Yeah. And it sounds extreme, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Have some more guns. <laughs> no, that's not good. No, I, you know, it's just, you know, that's. The problem with me is like. The, the but I don't think there's, that, sorry, but there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with the guns as long as you just, you know regulate them a little bit mm. well know? that's like when you know you people still started, a gun here yeah but people started flying out of windscreens yeah and then they went wait this is a fucking drama right eh? like yeah. we should just put some seatbelts in this thing definitely but it, like people weren't like fuck that's infringing upon my rights which is basically what the argument is but yeah. it's like these, the government is supposed to be there to help you decide the thing you know what i mean mm. to come together and be like this is what we should do mm. you know we've kind of come together this is an issue this yeah. is how we should fix it and i think I've, it's it's just more of a problem there of people not trusting the government but the government is just people and i like i yeah. mean i've had this argument with a bunch of people to where it's just like it's just people man but i think on the other side of the coin is we've all we're in a free market society mm. and i think that We've all decided, I've certainly am a big believer that the free market is the way to go. You need competition. You need people to decide mm. what is right. Yeah. And the, like there's enough people in America that decide that these guns are, that's the way to go. Yeah. And to me, it's like, all right, that's fine. The, I believe in the free market enough to believe that if the free market of America still wants that to go on you should be allowed to but this is the byproduct now you have to there's consequences to all these decisions you can't have that and then that too unless you give something but when both sides won't give anything the thing stays the same and that's what we're seeing it just stays the same but it's new and unique what we're seeing now isn't it it's unique to them yeah it's never really happened like this like where they've they know that there's something wrong. We know that there's something wrong, but they're not doing anything about it, you know? Dude, um, you know what we need to talk about, because it kind of goes to this, is what's the theory that you've got when it comes to... Um, peeing? you got to pee again. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? Do it. Well... We're done. We're talking a lot. And, mm. Fucking, we went deep. This is... we might, Yeah, we might have to cut this yeah, into yeah. actually two parts. It was good. Like I said in the at McAllister's, like, yeah, you're one of the bigger influences on my life across the board and there's Thanks, a <laughs> there's a you know, then i was talking about it with sam that there's a i was like oh, i need mentors i need to get me one of these mentors in business and that was and you know in life and then i kind of i almost laughed at myself because i was like fuck like look at all these people i've had around me mm. and you're at the very very top of that list so Thanks, and i'm That's excited to yeah. for people to if you've never heard of Glenn Jacobs to bring mm. people and insight into you know what you've done and the way you think and because it's always always positive it is always you know you're always doing shit and you get me out of bed all the fucking time to, <laughs> to, you know what I mean like actually you're get up too. and do something and but that and that's that's the that's the key find someone that motivates you 
and you can you know look up to and respect and then say yes when they do ask you to do shit never say no and that's how good things happen so very kind of me very kind of you mate that's rad that's uh yeah, it's good to see where you're going. This is, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Look, uh, this this thing is going great. Yeah, Gypsy Tales is uh, amazing, um, and uh, the way you're approaching it, and all the people you've got on board, and everything, it's fantastic. So, glad you well can done. be a part of it. Thank you, mate. Sweet, Lenny. See ya.